Trouble in Paradise in the Enterprise Tech Space, Digital Strategies and Tech Trends for 2023, and the Top Digital Transformation YouTube Videos of 2022. Those are just a few of the things we're going to talk about here in episode number 99 of Transformation Ground Control. This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberly. Welcome to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. This is the podcast that has everything to do with digital transformation, including the strategy, people, process, and technology sides of change. Normally, I would have Kyler Cheatham with me, my co-host, but she has fallen ill today, so she will not be joining me, but we'll we'll carry on without her and uh, hope she has a speedy recovery. This is episode number 99, which means it's one more episode until we get to episode number 100. Uh, Next week, by the way, we're going to do our top 10 countdown of the top 10 interviews of the entire year of 2022, so be sure to join us for that. That'll be an interesting and action-packed episode that you won't want to miss, but for this episode, we're going to cover a few different things here today. We're going to talk about on the Hot topic segment to open up, we're going to talk about the departure of the CEOs of both Salesforce and Slack. We're going to talk about some of the results the positive results that Oracle recently had in their recently quarterly financial results. And we're also going to talk about the top selected ERP systems of 2022 as well. We'll talk about that here in the opening segment. And then later in the show, we are going to have a very engaging and conversational discussion about digital strategies and tech trends for 2023. We're going to start off by going through my seven predictions and analysis of some of the trends that I see as being the most important for 2023, but then we're going to turn it to the audience and, and get their take on what they see as the biggest trends uh, to add to that list or maybe to uh, change to that list. And then finally, last but not least, later in the show, we're going to go through the top YouTube videos of 2022 in the digital transformation space. So I'm going to do a quick countdown and play you a few clips from some of the top 10 videos for my YouTube channel uh, that cover digital transformation. These are the most viewed videos of the year. We'll, we'll cover that here uh, later today. But before we get to that, just a reminder, we have new episodes of this show every Wednesday. You can check us out on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. You can also find us on audio podcast platforms throughout the world, including Google, Amazon, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, etc. Wherever you listen to podcasts, be sure to find us there on Transformation Ground Control. On that podcast platform, you can find us there wherever you listen. So getting into the hot topics, though, uh, just to start out, a few things we want to cover. First of all, the departure or the trouble in paradise in the tech space. Um, we're going to start off with the bad news and get that out of the way first. It, it really centers around Salesforce, which isn't really meant to pick on Salesforce. I think a lot of tech companies right now are struggling with layoffs. We've, of course, heard about Amazon and uh, Facebook and some other high-profile tech companies that have run into financial difficulties and or economic softness that has led them to eliminate positions and to have layoffs, in some cases pretty significant layoffs. So that's something that um, 
we'll we'll want to keep an eye on. But in particular, just to dive a little bit deeper, you know, here at the time we're recording this podcast episode, there was some new news at Salesforce, in particular, starting with Slack, which is a company that Salesforce bought, um, I think, about a year ago. And uh, it's, it turns out that Stuart Butterfield, who is the CEO of, of the Slack sub- subsidiary of Salesforce, uh, recently stepped down. Um, he's being replaced by, um, I forgot who, who, but he's being replaced by others within the organization. And that's a pretty big blow, I would say, for the person that uh, has led that company and that subsidiary for a while. Um, so that was a, a big a big change. But but what's even more surprising potentially is the timing of the co-CEO of Salesforce as a whole. So shortly after the Slack co-founder left the company and the, the leader of that Slack division within Salesforce, um, it was also noted that uh, Brett Taylor, who is the uh, CEO or the co-CEO of Salesforce, along with uh, Mark uh, Benoit, um, who start, actually co-founded the company. Um, those two were the co-CEOs, but Brett, Brett Taylor is leaving the company to go pursue more entrepreneurial things again. And it's not just about departures here. I think that's a normal you know, evolution of businesses and tech companies. You get executives that leave, you get attrition, you get employees that leave the organization. So that in, in and of itself is not uh, necessarily alarming. But when you look at a little bit deeper at the results of Salesforce and some of the financial results they've had recently. Um, They've historically done pretty well. They've been a very successful company for 20 or so years right now. But just in the last uh, few weeks uh, since releasing their third quarter earnings report at the end of November and since Taylor's departure, um, the stock market has really hammered Salesforce and they've lost 47% of their value and their valuation in in terms of stock price. Um, So that's obviously not a good sign or a good trend, at least in, in the short term. Um, and the other thing is when we look at the, the financial results and look a little bit deeper as to, you know, why, why is the stock suffering so much and why are there financial results uh, in question? Um, if we look at this here, you can see that um, the third quarter growth, the, their third quarter ended, I believe, at the end of November, Um, It has slowed down to 14% annual growth, which is very healthy for some organizations. But for Salesforce, they've gotten used to and accustomed to much higher growth rates than that. And they had expected a higher growth rate for the the quarter, for the third quarter, um, but they only came in at 14%. And so that falling below expectations was part of the challenge. And then you add to that the fact they've sort of downwardly revised their guidance for their fourth quarter results, where now they're only expecting 8 to 10% growth in the fourth quarter, which is the current quarter they're in right now. So I think that's a big challenge as you see Salesforce and growth slowing down, and that could be due to macroeconomic headwinds. There's certainly inflation, higher interest rates. A lot of things are contributing to this. Um, capital spending might be affected. We'll see. Um, I, I guess I suppose that's still to be determined whether or not the economy affects capital spending. But we are seeing some headwinds here, at least with Salesforce, in terms of the departure of their co-CEO, the Slack business unit head, and uh, and some soft revenue results coming out of the company, or at least softer than expected. And it's continuing to trend towards even more soft than their results were in the most recent quarter. But if we shift gears and look at another company, if we look at Oracle, Oracle is having sort of the opposite experience here at the end of their most recent quarter, which I believe also ended in November. I think this is their fourth quarter, if I remember correctly. 
um, that ends in November. Um, but they had much better results. Their total revenue grew 18% year over year. Obviously, Oracle is a much larger organization than Salesforce, so for them to grow at that rate is, is impressive for a company that size. It's impressive for any organization, but especially one that size. And it's also showing that their integration work with Cerner, which is the healthcare software company they acquired, I believe, about a year ago, um, has added about $1.5 million to their revenue for the year. And they're still working on integrating that company and getting some better margins and economies of scale from that acquisition. So I think there's a lot of upward potential for their financial results as a result of the Cerner integration. And uh, Cerner, or I'm sorry, Oracle over the years has been known for going out and acquiring companies, integrating the operations into the organization, and in most cases, leaving the software alone. I mean, I know now they're they're sunsetting out some of their older systems like J.D. Edwards and uh, PeopleSoft and whatnot. But historically, they've sort of hung on to those software solutions and let those software solutions remain um, in the longer term. I imagine that's probably what they'll do with Cerner as well, just because it's such a specialized software in the healthcare space. And the healthcare space is very hot right now, so it makes sense that they made that acquisition. And it would also make sense that they would let that be a standalone software solution outside of Oracle Fusion and some of the other uh, systems that they that they are operating from. Uh, their net income for the quarter was $1.74 billion, which was uh, compared to the year-ago quarter. Uh, they had a loss of $1.25 billion, so they had about a $3 billion swing from the quarter last year to this quarter, although there were some significant one-time losses that deflated those results last year. Um, the operating margin increased from 39% to 41% from the previous quarter, so their margins are headed in the right direction. And like I said, as they integrate Cerner more, the expectation is that those operating margins will continue to increase. So I think it's really interesting to see sort of a tale of two technologies here. Salesforce, who's got some turnover, maybe going through a bit of growing pains, part of an evolution of a natural evolution of a, of a technology company, and uh, some soft revenue results, whereas Oracle, sort of the one of the elephants in the in the industry, or the 800-pound gorillas in the industry, uh, is having the opposite result, which is revenue growth, accelerating revenue growth, accelerating margin growth, and uh, certainly their stock price is being rewarded for that as well. So that's some of the, the news to watch as we leave or exit 2022 and head into 2023 is just to understand what's going to happen with these tech companies and what are some of the results and how are the uh, different uh, organizations or how the different software companies going to differ or uh, maybe separate themselves in terms of performance. So speaking of software vendors and results, you know, another interesting data point is we look back to 2022 and, and look to 2023, which is a big theme for this episode of Transformation Ground Control, is really just sort of looking back, but also looking ahead. We're at that that inflection point here as we close out the year, and we're really starting to plan and think about 2023. It's also helpful to look at what were the systems that were most commonly selected and implemented by organizations throughout the world in 2022. Not that that necessarily points to the direction you should go with technology in 2023, but it does tell you or give you a benchmark of what the industry is doing and what other organizations are doing um, with their ERP investments. And so recently we posted a blog and video on my YouTube channel and a blog on my on the third stage website where we actually did a countdown of the top 10 most commonly selected and implemented ERP systems among our client base. Uh, we had about somewhere between 40 and 50. I don't recall the exact number, but it was between 40 and 50 organizations worldwide that we helped select and implement different types of technologies. 
And so what we did is we look at what were the systems that were most recommended and implemented within these organizations. So I'm going to just do a quick rundown of what these top 10 are. And if you want the the full scoop or the full uh, definition and detail behind this, you can certainly go to either uh, search on our website for top 10 selected ERP systems. You'll find this blog, or you can go to my YouTube channel and uh, search the same thing and you'll find it. You could, you can listen and watch and, and uh, read more detail, but coming in at number 10 was Odoo, which is an open source system. That's a system we see a lot with small and mid-sized organizations, especially ones that are looking for maximum flexibility and also organizations that are comfortable with that maximum flexibility. Cause sometimes that flexibility can be a liability especially for mid-sized or larger organizations that are trying to standardize operations and they don't necessarily want flexibility. They, they want more standardization. Odoo can be a great fit for those organizations that are comfortable with that and looking for that. So that was number 10 in our most commonly selected uh, ERP systems. Number nine was best of breed. So this was no one system, but the rather it was a recommendation of multiple systems. So a best of breed solution that could include, you know, ERP, CRM, HCM, supply chain management, business intelligence, or some combination of all the above and, and or other systems. So that best of breed option is something that we're actually seeing more and more of as companies get more comfortable with integration and best of breed tool sets, interoperability tool sets, that's causing organizations to become a little bit more comfortable with best of breed than they might've been in the past. Number eight is Acumatica. We, just as sort of a disclaimer, we as a company at Third Stage Consulting deal quite a bit with mid-sized manufacturing and distribution companies, and that's part of why Acumatica rated so high in our top 10 ranking is because we have so many clients in the mid-market that are in manufacturing that are likely to gravitate toward Acumatica, and that's sort of the one of the up-and-coming uh, ERP systems in our top 10 list here, and, and uh, especially if you're in the mid-market, that can be a great uh, system to to consider. Number seven, IFS, the European software company, um, very strong in the world of field services. So organizations like construction and utilities, for example, uh, oftentimes will select and implement IFS because of the, uh, the functional specific or the, or the functional strengths in, in some unique areas like field services and asset management, for example. So IFS is number seven. Number six is Oracle ERP Cloud. So we talked about Oracle a moment ago and how well they're doing as an organization in terms of revenue growth and margin growth. Um, they're certainly doing well with our client base. We're seeing uh, Oracle ERP Cloud being selected quite a bit uh, with organizations, especially larger to upper mid-market organizations. Number five is Epicor. So Epicor is a tier two solution, heavy focus on manufacturing, distribution, and some retail as well. And so that's a system that especially with our mid-market clients, especially in manufacturing and distribution. We see Epicor uh, Kinetic pretty often, and that is a system to keep an eye on as well. I think they've got a great leadership and team in place now. Um, they seem to have really turned the corner in sort of revamping the brand and the product. So I'm curious to see where Epicor goes in the future and how it moves up or down in our top 10 uh, most selected systems and implemented systems in the future. Number four is SAP S4HANA. And that is, obviously, most of you probably know SAP, the largest ERP software provider in the world. German company focuses heavily on Fortune 500 and Fortune 1000 organizations, large multinational organizations, complex organizations, seeing a lot of SAP S4HANA implementations right now. Um, partly because, too, because of their deadline to move 
legacy SAP customers off of ECC and R3, ECC in particular, which is the most recent SAP solution prior to S4 HANA. And so I think their deadline is 20, don't quote me on this, I believe it's either, I know it's either 2027 or 2030, I don't recall which one it is. I think they they moved it from 25 to 27, uh, if I remember correctly, but uh, you might want to look that up rather than quoting me on that because I don't have that in front of me. But regardless, they have put a drawn a line in the sand for when legacy customers need to be off ECC, which is driving and fueling a lot of S4 HANA implementations right now. If I were to look at organizations that didn't ask us to select systems, but they asked us for help implementing or recovering a failed implementation, and if I were to include that in our sample, which we did not include that in our sample, we only included the results from organizations that came to us asking for help to select and implement the software. Um, They were number four in that case, where these are the clients that were asking us to help select and implement the software. If I were to also include the companies that came to us, they've already picked the software. Now they need help implementing or re-implementing or recovering a failed implementation. S4 HANA might be number one. It probably would be number one on our list because we have so many clients and so many SAP customers that come to us either because they got in trouble during the S4 HANA implementation or they're just getting started and they want help from a technology agnostic provider like Third Stage. So regardless, that puts SAP S4 HANA at number four. Number three is in for Cloud Suite. That's one that's, I would say, moving up the list here. Um, it's, we're seeing more and more in for Cloud Suite solutions or, or implementations. I think they're doing a nice job uh, providing a sort of uh, bigger tier two alternative to SAP, Oracle, and, and even Microsoft Dynamics. So uh, in for Cloud Suite, number three. Number two, Oracle NetSuite. Um, the caveat to this is even though it's number two on our list of most selected systems, it's heavily weighted towards our smaller and our mid-market clients. So if I were to just look at our mid-market and upper mid-market and larger organizations, Oracle NetSuite would be a lot lower on the list. But when you factor in just the volume of smaller clients and the fact that there's more smaller companies out there, when you compare them to bigger companies, just the volume of organizations that are smaller and more in Oracle NetSuite's sweet spot, I think leads you know more organizations to uh, NetSuite. I don't mean to dismiss or undermine the value that NetSuite can bring, but you, you also have to look at the types of organizations that are implementing it. So... Uh, Oracle NetSuite's number two, obviously a software as a service pioneer, um, heavily focused on the small and mid-market space. So they are number two on our list. And number one is Microsoft Dynamics 365. That's the system that is most commonly recommended, selected, and implemented uh, by our organizations. Um, This includes both Dynamics 365 FNO, which is the the finance and operations system, which is for bigger bigger organizations. But I also we also lumped Business Central in that, even though that's people might argue that's not the right methodology. But we did include Business Central because technically it is D365. We included that as well. Although I will say that m- most, I'd say probably eighty to ninety percent of our Microsoft D365 implementations are FNO. So even if we took Business Central out, it may not be number one, or may or may not be number one on our list. But it would definitely be in the top three still, even if we stripped out Business Central uh, from that. So. Microsoft D365, great solution, um, especially in the mid-market for organizations that are looking for a bit more flexibility and integration ease than, say, an SAP. Um, Microsoft D365 can be a good alternative for that, so that's why we're seeing more of those. So Microsoft Dynamics at number one on our list of most recommended systems and most implemented systems in 2022. So that is what we had for our hot topics today. Um, We want to shift gears and we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we want to get into 
some of the digital strategies and tech trends for 2023. What are the things that you should be aware of and thinking about as you think about digital transformations? Um, what should you consider as you define your digital strategy? What are the trends to be aware of? And I'm going to share my seven predictions and trends for 2023. But more importantly, we're going to shift gears and turn to the audience and get their feedback as well. So it's going to be a very uh, collaborative discussion, if you will. So we'll get to that conversation about digital strategies and tech trends in just a moment. But first, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Are you looking to stay ahead of the curve in the ever-changing landscape of digital transformation? then you need our newly released 2023 Digital Transformation Report. This comprehensive report covers the latest trends, technologies, and strategies to ensure your digital transformation is optimized for success. The 2023 Digital Transformation Report is packed full of proven methodologies and insights from experts in the independent digital transformation field. You'll also receive practical insights on how to implement digital transformation strategies within your unique organization. This free report is available for download on our website at thirdstage-consulting.com under our thought leadership section. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 99. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm your host here today. And you can find new episodes of this podcast on audio podcast platforms throughout the world, as well as YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Be sure to check us out there and subscribe to us as well, if you don't mind. Uh, leave us a review. Anything you can do to like it, review it, share it with uh, colleagues, anything like that you can do certainly helps the algorithm and it helps get the word out to more people about this podcast. We appreciate you you sharing this with your colleagues and sharing any feedback you have. So I want to shift gears here and talk about tech trends for 2023. We just spent a moment talking about, you know, sort of this technology landscape and the industry landscape as we close out 2022. But now let's turn to 2023. What are the things that are going to change and the trends we're going to see and the digital strategies we should consider as we think about our digital transformations and ERP implementations in 2023? So with that, we want to talk about not only my seven predictions for the industry in 2023, but also hear from the audience, what they think, what do they agree with or disagree with from my list, and what would they add to the list or change to my list of trends. And so that promises to be a good discussion. So let's jump into it. So we're, we're going to jump in here and talk about digital strategies and tech trends for 2023. And just to get started, um, I thought I'd share some of the some of the predictions I had for 2023. Um, it's a it's a blog and a, a video that I recently published um, talking about some of the tech trends that I expect to see in 2023. So I want to use this as really a starting point to get to get us started and to hear your feedback. There might be some trends that I mentioned here that you totally agree with. There might be some that you completely disagree with. And there might be things I missed that you would you would add to. So that's really what I, I want to use this as a starting point. Um, to really cover these, I guess it was seven trends that I that I outlined in a video that I published about a month ago. And I'll, I'll just kind of walk through these one by one. It, it's sort of the, the high-level flyover view level, and then uh, let, you, let you comment and see what, what uh, pops up in the chat here. And um, like I said, anything you want to add to that, I'd love to hear your, your feedback here. So the first trend that, that, I, that I see for 2023 as it relates to technology, digital transformation, ERP, all that good stuff, 
is the potential beginning of the end for ERP software vendors. And this is probably the most controversial one that I've published. I've gotten a lot of mixed feedback on this prediction. Um, and especially in cases where I've clipped just this one prediction and posted that as a video, I've, I've gotten some very strong responses, both positive and negative. Uh, so I'd love to hear your feedback here. But uh, what I mean by that is the beginning of the end for big ERP vendors, and this relates to some of my other predictions, is that I certainly don't think ERP vendors, the big incumbents especially, are going away in 2023. That would be a completely unrealistic um, prediction. But what I do think is starting to happen is you're starting to see sort of an inflection point where the big, massive ERP vendors, I honestly think they're struggling strategically. I think strategically in the next five to 10 years, they're going to struggle to justify their existence. And what I mean by that is uh, ERP implementations have long been known as money pits, um, they've long created unnecessary risk for organizations, delivered questionable business value, in some cases, negative business value for organizations, not in all cases, of course, but in many cases, in too many cases, in my opinion. And what's happening now is you're seeing too many alternatives. There's too many alternatives to SAP, Oracle, Microsoft, some of these big enterprise-wide technologies. And I think that's part of the trend or the undercurrent that's contributing to this uh struggle of, of ERP software vendors strategically. And so the fact you have so many alternatives in the marketplace, combined with the fact that we're in an economic recession and or economic softness, depending on where in the world you are and how you define recession, uh, the global economy is not strong right now, uh, generally speaking. And when that happens, when you have a weak economy, companies tend to be a lot more conservative. They tend to be a lot smarter, in my opinion, about how they spend money on technology. And I think that undercurrent, the economic undercurrent and the uncertainty around the economy is leading organizations to really question and to force themselves to validate their spend on technology. And so when that happens, you start to think, well, do I really need a massive ERP enterprise-wide overhaul or would a point solution, best of breed sort of thing, would that be more, more suitable? So I think those two undercurrents are really what was leading me to the conclusion or to the prediction that in 2023 and even beyond 2023, you're going to start to see the market share erode for the big uh, ERP vendors. Um, so I'd love to hear your comments on that. Like I said, when I've posted this on this this comment on Instagram and TikTok and you in YouTube Shorts, just you know that one prediction in isolation, I get some pretty strong responses. So I'd love to hear in the chat what you think. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Um, and certainly, I know there's some ERP software vendors that are probably on this live stream that might have some some strong opinions as well. So I'd love to hear that uh, as well. So that's the first prediction I have is beginning of the end for the big ERP vendors. Um, second one, which is sort of dovetails or ties into that first one, is the rise of open software platforms, um, including open source. And so uh, back to the point of there being too many alternatives two big ERP systems, four ERP systems to continue their dominant lock on organizations. One of the big alternatives that organizations are starting to embrace more and more is open software platforms and open source. And I call those out as two different things, but kind of lumped together, but really they're, they are two different things. Um, when I talk about open source, that's going to be products like um, ERP Next and uh, Odoo are two examples of open source systems where you can buy the software, you you have access to the source code, you can do whatever you want with it, provides a lot more flexibility than some of the traditional uh, ERP vendors. And then in addition to open source though, and I think the even bigger 
part of this when, when I talk about the rise of open platforms is actual platforms themselves. So in other words, rather than investing in, in a system or an application that's enterprise wide, it's more focused on on um, focusing on implementing a platform within the organization. So for example, you look at uh, probably the best example I can think of is uh, Salesforce has their force platform, which Salesforce is a CRM system, may or may not be a system that your organization might benefit from. But what Salesforce also provides is the force platform. And the force platform allows third-party developers to create variations or add-ons to Salesforce to provide other types of functionality. So theoretically, you could actually get a full-blown ERP solution uh, in the Forest platform because you could start with Salesforce as a CRM application, but then you can add your financial force and other financial types of systems. There's Rootstock that's sort of a manufacturing application built on the Forest platform. Um, so a lot of manufacturers might look at Rootstock as, as a application they might deploy on that platform. And those are just a few examples within one platform that I'm talking about here, which is the, the Salesforce Force platform. Uh, but there's others as well. And so I think that rise of open software platforms is something that we're going to see more of. It provides more flexibility um, with integration tools the way they are and development tools the way they are and the way they've advanced in recent years. Um, that certainly has provided a lot more uh, feasibility uh, to that concept. And then the so that's the second prediction that I had, uh, second of seven, which is the rise of open software platforms. Um, third is going to be interoperability and integration. Very similar trend or similar to the second one. Um, so, it, But instead of talking about open so source platforms or open software platforms, this is more related to um, sort of the best of breed model of the past, but with this 2020s spin on it. And this would be uh, products such as uh, Palantir, for example. Palantir and Snowflake are two examples of systems that are providing interoperability of systems. And sort of like middleware, sort of like business intelligence that provides um, analytics and visibility across multiple systems, but, but again, more of a 2020s slant to that middleware concept. Um, but these applications like Palantir, Snowflake, and others are providing the option to not necessarily rip out all of your systems and replace it with a big ERP system. And again, this trend also ties back to the first one, which is why I think ERP systems are going to struggle in 2023 and beyond uh, because you have these interoperability platforms that are becoming more and more mature that's gonna allow you to either preserve some or all of your current legacy systems for better or for worse. I'm not here to judge whether or not you should or shouldn't be keeping your legacy systems, but the fact that you have the option to do that um, rather than necessarily replace all of your systems is, is something that is emerging as a technology. Um, so that interoperability and integration, the flexibility it provides is a third prediction I have. Uh, fourth is a focus on supply chains. So when we look at digital transformations, more so now than any time in my career, the focus really is on how do we improve and optimize and streamline and, and uh, maximize our supply chain and provide better supply chain management for organizations um, that are struggling to keep up with demand or, or, or to predict demand and that sort of thing. So that focus on supply chain management, especially for manufacturing, distribution, um, supply chain intensive types of organizations, um, and even quite frankly, some organizations like healthcare and, and government even 
nonprofits that aren't super dependent on a supply chain or aren't uh, supply chain intensive, they're still focusing more on it because they're ha- they're having trouble getting the products they need to run their business. And so effective procurement, logistics, supply chain management becomes important to even non-manufacturing and non-distribution types of firms. So focus on supply chain management is a fourth uh, trend and prediction that we see for 2023. Uh, fifth, and this is something we're already seeing, this is actually sort of an easy prediction. And, and in my defense, though, I've made this prediction before all the mass layoffs really started in the tech space. Um, although it was starting earlier in the year, it, it really accelerated here in the last couple months, um, the, the layoffs and, and uh, downsizing that's happening right now in the tech space. But the fifth prediction I had related to that is that there will be labor disruptions, um, both in terms of when you go to find a tech partner and an implementation partner, finding a partner that has the right resources and high quality resources is going to become more of a challenge um, because there just are labor disruptions through layoffs and attrition uh, across the industry. So that's something to be aware of as well, is that the third party labor disruptions that might affect you as you're working with an implementation partner or software vendor, but also internal organizations that are trying to staff a digital transformation or an ERP implementation are going to struggle with that. They're going to struggle with having the right resources and and having the committed resources that they can dedicate to the project the way they need to, because they themselves internally are oftentimes are downsizing or on hiring freezes, um, are running pretty lean without much of a bench. And so that's going to contribute to, to those labor disruptions. So that's another prediction or challenge we see in 2023 is the labor disruptions, both internally and externally to the organizations. The sixth prediction I have, and then I'll, I'll get to the seventh, and then I'm going to turn it over to the audience here. I have a ton of, ton of comments and chats coming in, so I want to turn to the audience uh, pretty quickly here. But the sixth prediction I have is an increase in transformation failures. Um, and I really think this one is going to accelerate pretty dramatically in the next two to three years. I think we're, we're already seeing in our expert witness practice, we're already seeing a, a pretty significant spike in demand for expert witness services reason I bring this up is because that's an indicator to us that there are a lot of failures happening in the marketplace. When we see more demand from lawyers reaching out to us to be expert witnesses to testify in court for a lawsuit related to a digital transformation or an ERP project, that suggests that the failures are increasing. And it's not just that on the surface. It's more of a, a uh, symptomatic uh, indication that there's failures happening and accelerating in the marketplace. But what's even more significant, in my opinion, is that with the mass transition to the cloud, so in other words, software vendors that are sunsetting old on-premise systems and essentially forcing customers to get off their old systems and migrate to a new cloud solution, with that mass migration that's happening in the marketplace comes accelerated risk. And the reason for that is because anytime an organization is forced to go into a digital transformation without a really good reason other than the software vendor is forcing them, to me, that's a recipe for disaster, and that's a recipe for extremely high-risk transformation. And you multiply that by the exponential increase in organizations that are being forced in that situation. I think you're going to see a lot more, a lot more transformation failures. The other thing that I think will contribute to transformation failures is the labor disruption trend that I just talked about a moment ago. The fact that there are labor disruptions both internally within organizations going through transformation as well as with their implementation partners, 
that's going to make it more difficult to be successful and to be effective in a digital transformation. So watch for those transformation failures uh, to increase. If there is a silver lining here or something that might counter that trend, it's the economic situation that I talked about, where organizations tend to get more conservative, they tend to be more diligent, they tend to have better controls in place, and they try to manage risk more when the economy is weak. That undercurrent could actually counter that trend and maybe force some discipline into organizations and project teams uh, that might help mitigate this risk a bit. But overall, I think the net result will still be that we'll see an increase in transformation failures. It might be just not as bad as it would be otherwise because organizations presumably will be more diligent and disciplined about how they go about uh, the transformations. And then last, seventh, my seventh prediction for 2023 is that customers will do more due diligence as part of their transformation. In other words, I, I'm seeing a trend already where organizations aren't just sort of uh, throwing Hail Mary passes, just blindly following a software vendor because they believe that's the right answer, and then blindly following a system integrator that tells them how the project is going to be. Uh, what we're seeing instead is organizations are being more cautious. They're being more careful. Um, it's leading to longer sales cycles for software vendors, which they don't like, but it's leading organizations to be more deliberate, work at a more deliberate pace, at a more measured pace as they go through their transformations. And that is, um, in my opinion, a good thing. So this is probably the most positive trend that I see uh, of the seven that I have here, at least in the short term. I think it's a positive trend that there's more customer due diligence, a focus on risk mitigation, a focus on project controls a focus on benefits realization and ROI. You're just seeing more of that now. And, and I remember in 2008, back when the financial crisis happened globally and the, the economy globally was in a was in a recession and, and had a lot of issues, I remember the same thing in 2008, 2009, 2010. In that era of ERP and digital transformation, organizations were a lot smarter. They were just more focused on due diligence. They, they just did their homework. They didn't blindly follow software vendors. They didn't just uh, trust a system integrator to take over a project completely. They took more ownership. They took more control. They asked questions. They mitigated risks. So I think that's a um, an important thing to keep in mind. So those are my seven predictions. But again, I'd love to hear your comments. Are there any there that really resonate with you that you think, hey, yeah, that, that's something that I would see? Or is there anything here that you think that's just so far off base, not at all what you would expect to see in the, in the coming years. And uh, I don't have all the answers and I'd love to hear counterpoints. So I'd love to hear any counterpoints you might have. And certainly if there's anything I missed, is there anything you would add to this list as far as predictions? That's really what I want to get to next as we, as we turn to the audience here. Um, but first, before I get to some of the chat or some of the questions about that have already come in about trends and some of your comments related to that, um, I want to thank those of you that dropped in the chat where you're joining from today. We have uh, Ryan from Denver, Khalid from Washington, D.C., uh, Tom from Montreal, Canada, Daniel from Grand Forks, North Dakota, uh, James from Hereford, U.K., James from Union, New Jersey, um, Brent from Baja, Mexico. Uh, I'm just going to call you you on YouTube. Yuzor uh, Chikwa. Uh, from the UK. I apologize. I'm sure I completely butchered that. Someone else from the UK. I can't see the name though. Uh, Malcolm from UK, someone from Brazil, etc. So thank you all for dropping in the chat. Uh, global audience, people from all over the world joining here today. So I'd love to get the global perspective on what trends you're seeing in your, in your home markets and uh, what you think will happen in 2023 in your home and global markets here. 
So one of the comments here that actually came in before I even started my seven predictions here uh, was from someone on LinkedIn. I apologize. My, uh, my feed here is not showing the name of the person, but someone on LinkedIn commented open source and low code and no code. Um, I talked about open source, but I did not talk about low code and no code. And that is something I agree with. That is something that's becoming more and more embedded in ERP systems and digital transformations. And just to maybe provide some context or background, low code and no code is essentially a way or, or a, a way a software is built to where you can make changes to the software without having to change the, without having to materially change the source code uh, and do heavy development. So it's sort of like custom uh, configuration. So in the past you had configuration, which is your basic setup of the software. And then you had customization and customization is where you go in and uh, do some pretty significant changes to the code. And you're actually developing software uh, within the platform. Um, and in the past, you sort of had this black and white answer, either you configure the software to do what you want it to do, or if that isn't enough, then you customize the software. But what low code and no code does is sort of provides more of a middle ground to where, yeah, you're doing maybe a little bit more than your basic configuration, but you're also not doing these mass changes to the software that are risky and create other technical challenges oftentimes. So that low code, no code thing is a big buzzword. A lot of vendors are using it. Some vendors are more mature than others in their their low code, no code tool set or, or approach. But that is something that uh, the market is clearly demanding and something that I think will become more relevant as well. And I, I totally agree with um, that comment. So thank you. Thank you for that. I also want to turn to um, uh, Brent on LinkedIn has a great comment, something we haven't touched on yet, which is greater AI adoption. And, you know, in my trends, I, I sort of looked at a real macro strategic high level I didn't dive into specific technologies other than what I said about interoperability and some of the open platforms I didn't really dive into some of the some of the point solutions or some of the real specific technologies that I think will be relevant but I do agree that AI adoption will will increase I think that's something that organizations are just still trying to learn and figure out how AI works and how it could change their business models um, I also think organizations are still struggling with trying to figure out how they can get the right data and the right accurate data into their AI models. And so there's a lot of legwork and a lot of foundational type of work that organizations need to do before they can get to greater AI adoption, uh, primarily on the human side and just the, the human understanding of how AI can help their business, but also on the technical side, just making sure that the data models and the data that that organizations have can support these AI models. And unfortunately, so many organizations have data that's, that's uh, corrupt or dirty and, and not accurate that it, it creates problems with, with AI models. So I think that's a, a, a potential roadblock or barrier or a, a slowing of adoption of AI is the fact that organizations have these human issues and these data issues. But I do think that is something that's going to become more and more, um, more and more common is, is more AI technologies are out there. ERP vendors are already starting to bake AI and machine learning into their core applications, as are other, you know, CRM and HCM, HR types of uh, technologies. So I think that AI adoption, I agree with that. That's going to be a definitely a, a emerging trend here. Okay, we're here talking about the top digital strategies and tech trends for 2023. We've got a lot more to cover, a lot more conversation to have. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control.
Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting, and we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings. And the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out, and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. We are here chatting with the live audience about digital strategies and tech trends for 2023. Let's jump back into it. So just rolling through the comments here, thank you for all the great comments. I'm actually having trouble keeping up with them. So bear with me as I, I try to read and comprehend all of them, um, all of them here. Um, just to build on that last comment, Ryan on LinkedIn says that AI seems to be one of the super hot trends lately, art, ads, marketing, et cetera. And that's a great point that Ryan br brings up is that, you know, I, I've been talking about AI so far in the context of enterprises and how enterprises might leverage AI to better predict demand or how to uh, better predict the skill sets within the organization that are going to most contribute to success for the organization, things like that, more of the enterprise types of functionality. But I think the real tipping point is going to come because of what Ryan mentions here, which is that you see arts, you see ads, you see marketing, um, other uses of AI more at the consumer facing level that I think that's going to drive adoption potentially more than anything. You know, it's sort of like, uh, sort of like when you think back to the user interfaces 10 or 20 years ago of ERP systems, they were, they were pretty horrendous. Um, in fact, a lot of organizations are still using those old technologies that were pretty horrendous in their, in their, uh, user interfaces. And what really changed that and, and the tipping point, in my opinion, for enterprise technology providers was Facebook and some of these, uh, social media companies, Facebook, Twitter, um, for example, Instagram, those social media companies sort of created an expectation at the consumer level of what technology should look like. And ERP software vendors quickly followed suit and they quickly tried to mimic the look and feel of, of social media. And they're still trying to do that. And so I think the reason I bring that up is because I think you're going to see the same thing in AI is that I think it might be the consumer level that really drives adoption of AI. And then enterprises sort of lag behind that and eventually adopt because the, at the consumer level or at the individual level, people are using and understanding AI better. A great example of this is a, you know, a trend that I've hopped on recently on social media is the, um, the AI facial recognition and being able to create, create emojis or pictures of yourself using AI. And it's really cool. There's really cool applications like Lenzo is the one that I used. Um, it's where you can take a bunch of pictures of yourself, real pictures of yourself, and the AI 
will create a bunch of just alternate sort of, you know, artwork and uh, fake pictures, if you will, of yourself. And it's, it's really good. It's really powerful. And so that's just one example where, where a lot of consumers are starting to see Lenza and other AI types of technologies at that consumer level might be totally irrelevant to enterprises, at least on the surface, but it, it's important because as people get more comfortable with AI at the consumer level, um, you'll start to see organizations uh, follow suit because it's those same individuals that are using it at the consumer level that will eventually figure out how to use it at the, at the enterprise level. So that's a great point, uh, Ryan. So thank you for that. Um, I want to dive into, uh, here's a few comments here about my uh, first prediction about the beginning of the end for ERP vendors. So let's dive into this and see sort of qualitatively what the, uh, the thinking here is with, with the group. Um, I'm just going to go in sort of the order that I see them here. Uh, but Brent over on LinkedIn uh, makes a comment that big, big ERP promises everything and delivers nothing but headaches for users. Um, that's, that's something that I think those of us in the ERP space that have been here for a long time have seen plenty of in our time and, and myself included. You see a lot of uh, big ERP implementations that have big promises and it ends up being a disaster and a train wreck and creates a lot more headaches than problems solved. So uh, I tend to agree with you there, Brent, that big, big ERP can be a challenge. And, and to be fair, though, I mean, one thing I do want to clarify in my prediction for ERP vendors, I don't know. I mean, the, the problem itself isn't entirely with the ERP software vendors. I don't think they're the problem necessarily, although I, I think they do contribute to it by creating false expectations for what their software can and can't do and what the implementation may or may not look like. I, I think they do create false expectations too often, but it's not the product itself that I think is the problem necessarily, or at least entirely. I think a lot of it is just how organizations manage these projects and how the system integrators manage the projects. People and organizations just simply aren't good at deploying ERP technologies, big enterprise-wide integrated enterprise technologies, even if it's the right answer for your organization, organizations just aren't good at it in general. Um, and that includes the software vendors and their system integrators. They're not that good at it either, to be candid. If you were to look at, you know, kind of across the industry, there's just too many, too many vendors and, and VARs and integrators out there that really, in my opinion, don't know what they're doing. And you wonder sometimes how they manage to be in business as long as they have and, and uh, how they haven't managed to get sued more often than they have. Um, but th that's an interesting perspective, uh, Brent, so thank you for that. And then Brent actually goes on with a sort of a part two to that comment that ERP vendors can't compete with smaller, more nimble, business-specific software from what he's seen in his world. So uh, great comment. I do think you look back at, you know, this is sort of a trend that's not new. It's, it's a, I would say it's a pendulum swinging, you know, over time in 25 years that I've been doing this. I feel like the pendulum sort of swings back and forth between massive big ERP systems, fully integrated, one single source of truth, all the benefits that you could potentially get with ERP. The pendulum will oftentimes swing that direction, but then in the industry, the pendulum will often swing back to best of breed as a counter or as a reaction to some of the problems with the big ERP model. Big ERP model has its advantages, but it also creates complexity, complete, uh, creates rigidity, it creates lack of fit in too many parts of the organizations, which causes the pendulum to swing back for organizations to say, well, let's counter that with finding more best of breed point solutions that'll allow us to, um, you know, just get more value out of our technology. So I think um, that is what 
organizations will continue to see. I honestly don't think that pendulum will ever stop swinging. I think it's just something that continues to go back and forth. Um, I think every for every for every improvement or problem that Best of Breed solves, big ERP vendors oftentimes come out with new functionality or they use their scale to go acquire one of those Best of Breed solutions, and it sort of forces the pendulum to swing back. Um, I do think, though, if there was a time where you might start to see the pendulum swing more heavily toward best of breed or that interoperable model that I talked about earlier, I think now is probably the time where you might see that. And and that's why I think the ERP vendors will start to lose more market share as that pendulum swings back to uh, some of these best of breed providers as well. So thank you for those those comments, Brent. Here's another comment from someone. I can't see their name, but it's on LinkedIn. I'm not sure why some names are showing up here and some aren't. Uh, but this person who shall remain nameless, uh, not by choice, is a big ERP vendors cannot keep relying on just their names for sales, especially if they are alternatives that potentially do the same work at a more economical price and with more flexibility. That's really well said. So I think, in other words, organizations aren't necessarily just going to keep going out and buying more SAP and more Oracle, more Microsoft software just because of the names they're going to find and realize over time that there are potentially more economical, more targeted, better functional fit types of solutions that will help organizations more effectively than some of the big ERP systems. So I think that's a great, great point and well said. Ali on LinkedIn says, absolutely, the future of digital platforms. So he's agreeing with the digital platform comment. Thank you for that. Ali also says platforms and their ecosystems are now part of our daily lives. I think you're seeing that, uh, you know, you're seeing that trend that again started years ago, and is continuing to accelerate. Where you get, um, you get companies like 20 years ago, you had Salesforce and Workday, you know, Salesforce on the sales and CRM side, Workday on the HR and HCM side of technology, where they they weren't trying to be everything to everyone. They just came in with a, a disruptive solution that did their little area or the little functional part of the world, they did it really well and they did it better than a lot of ERP vendors. And then they started to disrupt that part of the ERP space. And again, this is 20 years ago that that started and you're still seeing the after effect or the ripple effect of that, even just with those two vendors here today. But what I think you're going to see more and more of is just more work days, more sales forces in the world that are going to come out and disrupt the space because again, they can provide uh, better functionality in many cases at a lower cost and provide better ROI. And starting a software company today is easier than it's ever been. It's not like 10, 20, 30 years ago where it was super expensive and took a really long time with technology tools and development platforms the way they are. And even, you know, even the options you have to write a solution from scratch or to write a solution on another platform like the Force platform that I talked about or um, even, you know, NetSuite, for example, is providing third-party development options now. So software vendors are moving that direction towards providing more platform types of options, which is further lowering the barriers to entry for software developers and potential software vendors in the future, which means more competition, which means more options, which means ERP vendors now have more to compete with. And there's more better answers potentially than the single big ERP systems. I want to get to this comment here from Sam Graham over on LinkedIn. And Sam, who is a regular contributor to our content, which I really appreciate is when thinking about integrating different systems, is the granularity of the data being transferred something that needs to be considered? In other words, it may not always be have to be as detailed in the target system as it is in the donor system. 
It's a great question. And, uh, and I think it's worth noting that you're right. I mean, just because you have data within your organizations now doesn't mean you need it. Doesn't mean you should migrate it. Um, it may be that you bring over less data, but you focus on cleaning up that data and making sure it's really good data. Um, the other thing too, is in addition to not necessarily needing the granularity of data that you've had in the past. Um, and, you know, I think organizations a lot of times hoard, they're, they're hoarders, you know, they hoard the data, they hoard the information. They, they think they need to take all this with them when in many cases they don't, maybe there's just, uh, you know, historic trial balances or historic financial results that you're transferring over along with the master data, but you're not bringing over all the transactional stuff, you know, from the last however many decades that you've been using technology. So I think it's a great, a great point that, um, you have to question that, but you also have to question, is there data, you know, third-party data or other data sources that we could be leveraging, particularly when we think about AI and machine learning? Um, you know, a great example would be supply chain management organizations. They're trying to figure out how to better predict supply and align supply and demand better within their supply chains. A lot of times the internal data you have is great, maybe, but it's not enough or it's not complete. There could be other third-party sources of data that you could integrate into your supply chain, which is becoming more of a more of a trend. And as you leverage more of those third-party data sources, that gives you more models to work with or more inputs to your AI, AI models. So when you think about predictive analytics or predicting what your supply chain needs might be or even just what customer demand might be, you're looking not only at your own seasonal and historic trends internally as an organization, but now you can leverage other data sources, things like you know economic economic data, or other consumer types of data from third party analysts and things like that that might give you inputs and give you ways and new ways to predict what's going to happen in the world and how organizations may or may not. Um, you know, may or may not evolve and, and predict their demand. So that's something that we're seeing uh, more of as well. Another comment from LinkedIn is absolutely, we'll see more individual tiny mid-sized agencies implementing big projects. Be curious to know from that person who commented, which I don't see the name, but whoever commented, I'd love to hear what, what types of big projects are you talking here? Just technology in general or any sort of technology in particular that you see with individual tiny and mid-sized agencies. I'd be curious to hear hear your uh, follow on there as well. Um, another comment here um, from Brent on LinkedIn again, yes, we see more stakeholders involved in the buying process. And so I, I suspect that was in response to the comment about organizations and project teams being more diligent and more careful in their digital strategies and in their execution of their digital transformations as well. So um, I think for software vendors, that means, you know, you should probably just hunker down and, uh, and assume and expect that your sales cycles are going to continue to increase as organizations become more risk adverse and become more um, diligent in their efforts. Um, and if you're a project team member, or you're a leader within an organization, that's a, something to keep in mind as well. It might be frustrating to you as an internal leader, or if you're a software vendor, I'm sure it's frustrating too. It's going to slow down the decision cycle, but organizations, I think the good news in all this is that organizations are going to be a lot more deliberate. They're going to be a lot more aligned as, as a team when they go into these projects, rather than just jumping in with all the misalignment and unclear vision that they've typically done in the past. Now you're starting to see organizations just really question, what do we want? You know, what do we want to be when we grow up? Um, you know, what's the meaning of life? All, all those sorts of things, you know, just having that 
maybe not that last part, but having a clear vision for what it is they want in the future, um, that just creates more alignment and it creates more, it sort of greases the wheels to create more successful digital transformation projects. So I think it, it could end up being a, a positive thing for sure. Here's a really interesting question from Malcolm on LinkedIn. Let me see if I can fit the whole question here. It looks like most of it I can fit. And Malcolm says, uh, is not the reduction in vendor consultancy numbers a result of businesses' reduction in their IT, digital transformation, and ERP spend? Will we not end up with a new balance? Um, I think that that's an interesting question because you have you have internal organizations that are running lean. You know, they're they're in many cases not adding to their IT staff. In many cases, they're reducing or just letting it sort of shrink through attrition. Um, especially as organizations move to the cloud and manage service providers, that's sort of shifting the workload from the internal IT resources to external resources in many cases. But the, the overall spend, I would argue, is really not necessarily changing or, or it's not changing for the better as much as software vendors, especially cloud vendors and managed service provider vendors would suggest. I mean, they're going to tell you you're going to reduce all these costs, but really what you're doing in many cases, you're just shifting those costs from internal costs to costs that you're spending with the vendors um, and the net result sometimes actually increases, which cloud vendors don't want to tell you. And they oftentimes hate when I say that, but it's true. Oftentimes with SaaS and cloud systems, you're going to have that ongoing subscription model that ends up being higher in the long term than if you were to manage some of this in-house. Now, yes, there's a ton of advantages and reasons you should move to the cloud and that many organizations are moving to the cloud. I'm not saying it's wrong, but you want to be realistic and understand that, yeah, maybe there's strategic reasons for doing it. Maybe there is business value on top of any potential cost reduction or or instead of any potential cost reduction. But there's oftentimes not a real net cost reduction. That total cost of ownership, if you look five to seven years out on a cloud or SaaS solution, oftentimes that ends up being higher cost than um, if you were you know, managing a lot, of that, a lot of those applications and infrastructure in-house. Now, yes, it's, it might be better. It might be more... Um, cutting edge. It might provide you better capabilities and competencies. It might remove a lot of headaches for you organizationally. So there is benefit, but it's oftentimes not the cost benefit that's so often sold uh, in the market space. So great point there. Um, here's a great uh, question from Shonda on LinkedIn. Hello, Shonda. I don't recognize your name, so you, you might be new to, to our live streams here, or at least a first-time commenter. So thank you if you are. Um, but Shonda says interoperability and integrations really require good data. So with some companies not investing on the QA, QC effort of the data, does this make sense for companies to focus on your number three point? And my number three point was the one about interoperability and integration. Um, and I think you bring up a great point. I mean, for a lot of these trends and for any digital strategy that you might pursue for that matter, you really do have to ask yourself, can we do it right? You know, it might be the it might be the ideal thing for us. It might be ideal in a perfect world. But if we can't do the things we need to do to be successful in that initiative, then maybe we either throttle back our expectations or our scope. We maybe redirect our efforts and our focus based on what we think we can do well. So in the case of interoperability and um, integration, or even the AI one that we were just talking about a moment ago, if you can't invest in good data and you can't invest in providing the quality assurance and cleansing that data, cleaning it up and migrating it effectively, then you have to ask yourself, if we can't do that, then is it worth us trying to create this interoperability model or leveraging AI 
Um, so then the question becomes, well, I mean, first of all, I'd say if you have bad data and you can't clean your data, then I don't know that there's really any technology that's going to fix that. You need to you need to fix that. It's sort of like uh, sort of like your business processes. If your business processes are broken, putting in new technology isn't going to fix them. You, you need to fix the business processes. Yes, you can use technology to help you fix them, but you have to have that clear vision of this is what our business processes are going to look like. This is our future state operating model. This is the ideal and most efficient and effective way for us to operate. So that's what we're going to do, and we're going to do that well, and we're going to use technology to help us do it, and we're going to invest accordingly. Now, it's same thing. If you can't invest and you can't commit to improving your business processes and really defining what you want your processes to be, then you have to ask yourself, is it worth going through this exercise of a, a massive transformation, which might end up creating more headaches and actually undermine business value um, if we're not able to invest in some of these things? And so that's a really good point, Sean. I think that to do any of these initiatives, really, I'd, I'd actually expand your point to any sort of technology. You need to have good data. Um, otherwise, you're just you're just uh, putting lipstick on the pig, so to speak. You're you're putting in new technology, but you've got the same dirty data in it. You might have the same broken processes. People may not be using the system the way they should, so they go back to their old spreadsheets. So you see that too often where organizations have this new technology that can do all these things, but they can't leverage it because they didn't invest in data. They didn't invest in business processes. They didn't invest in change management and getting people to use the system. All that stuff is, is really important. So thank you for that, for that feedback. So a question from Joe on YouTube is, do you see customers going to a hybrid solution rather than full-scale cloud? Um, and yes, absolutely. That's probably the most common situation we're seeing right now is more the hybrid model where there might be some point solutions or even the core ERP system that gets moved to the cloud, but you have other applications that you're still running uh, on-premise and and, uh, and integrating with that core back office system. So that used to be a bad thing. I mean, I'm, if I would have said that that was okay 10 or 20 years ago, I feel like I'd probably get um, a lot of negative feedback from from the audience and, and just in general. And, and the reason for that is because 10 or 20 years ago, you didn't have the integration tools that you have now. And, and it's just, I think organizations are are comfortable enough and they've built enough really good integration tools that integration isn't a bad thing. Best of breed is not a bad thing. Interoperability is not a bad thing. Um, if you're an ERP software vendor and that threatens your existence, then you're probably going to perpetuate the thought that, yes, that's a bad thing. And you're going to commission Gartner and Forrester to put out reports about how everyone needs to move to the cloud or else they're going to die. And you can find plenty of analyst reports that say if you're not fully in the cloud by 2025, you're going to be out of business or whatever, you know, whatever uh, uh, hyperbole they, they tend to put out there. But you have to remember a lot of that messaging is coming from the software vendors and they're commissioning those reports and those findings from industry analysts that you think are third party independent sources, but they're not. They're being commissioned by the software vendors. So. You have to really counter or really think through, okay, software vendors and industry analysts think one thing, but that doesn't mean that it's a one-size-fits-all answer. For you as an organization and for most organizations we work with, that hybrid model is really powerful because then you could be more deliberate about where you move to the cloud. And there might be some things, for example, where you have like you have your uh, commodity business processes, things that aren't competitive differentiators. They're, not, they're critical, but they're not going to make or break your business. In those cases, oftentimes you can sort of outsource that and move that sort of functionality to the cloud, just adapt to whatever capabilities are available in the cloud, and that works fine. But when it comes to some of your customer-facing or your product-specific or your service-specific types of technologies that really differentiate you as an organization, that might be more of a candidate to preserve either on-premise or 
The other option is you have hybrid cloud as well, where you, you could have those applications in the cloud, but it's more of a private cloud rather than a public cloud. So private cloud is more like the on-premise model where you could do whatever you want to the technology. You can customize it, you can integrate it, you can break it for better or for worse. You can do whatever you want, um, but it's hosted somewhere else. Someone else is hosting it uh, in the cloud, which for cybersecurity and reliability purposes is, is the right answer for a lot of organizations. Um, so I think um, that the hybrid model and the options, I think are really important to consider because too often organizations are hammered with this messaging from the market that you have to move to the cloud, you have to move to a single ERP system or whatever the trend of the day is. And if you don't do whatever the trend of the day is, then you're going to fail as a business. That's sort of the messaging you oftentimes hear in the market, which I think is extremely misleading and unhealthy. So you really have to counter or question that messaging and, and really look inwardly as well to figure out what's right for you um, as an organization. Okay, we're here talking about the top digital strategies and tech trends for 2023. We've got a lot more to cover, a lot more conversation to have. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. We are here chatting with the live audience about digital strategies and tech trends for 2023. Let's jump back into it. Um, interesting question from Khalid on YouTube asks if I have any predictions about cyber and zero trust. Um, and you, you're right. I have not talked about cybersecurity yet. That is arguably one that should be for sure in a top 10 list. Uh, if I went to a full 10 predictions, I think that was one of my predictions for, for 2022. Um, when I uh, released those last year. Um, but I think that's a continuing trend for sure. Cybersecurity, zero trust, and, and really locking down your systems and having the the uh, protocols in place. Uh, one thing that I think is often overlooked, though, as it relates to cybersecurity is oftentimes we think about hackers because we, we so often hear in the news and the media about big organizations that have been hacked and they stole credit card information or customer information or whatever it is. Important stuff, you want to tighten that up for sure. But the other risk that is less often discussed because it's less obvious and it's, um, I don't know, it just doesn't get as much attention, but it, maybe it should, is that oftentimes the security isn't necessarily a problem with an external breach. Oftentimes it's internal breaches. So in other words, you've given the wrong security profiles or the wrong access to the wrong people. And even if they're not nefarious actors or they're not trying to do anything wrong, sometimes that data ends up in the wrong hands or the data gets compromised because you haven't really locked down who internally has access to what data. So I think you have to look both internally and externally. Um, and when you look extra, when you look internally, I'm sorry, look internally, you want to look at not only how people have access to data with the security profiles and all that stuff, 
but you also want to look at what your um, your IT security policies are and, and their day-to-day business processes to make sure that they're protecting uh, the data. Uh, by they, I mean their employees. Um, you want to make sure they're protecting their data as well throughout the throughout their life cycle. Another question from uh, LinkedIn, or I'm sorry, from YouTube. This is from James on YouTube. He asks the very good question. Do you think the rise of expert witnesses has to do with the overpromise and underdeliver, or more from pressure from the customer to do things faster? Uh, great question. And I would say I would. It's a combination of all the above. I would say first of all, but I'd say the if I had to place an emphasis or a weighting of where the problem lies, I'd say it is with the first part of what you say, James, which is the overpromise and underdeliver. Um, software vendors are selling, overselling their capabilities, especially with some of these less mature cloud solutions for, for legacy incumbents that didn't start off in the cloud. They're still catching up and trying to get their cloud technologies on par with their on-premise legacy systems that they had decades of R&D and functionalities and capability investments. But now they're trying to, in, in a very compressed period of time, trying to do a complete rewrite of that technology in cloud technologies um, and provide those same functionalities. And they just haven't gotten there yet. And they will eventually. I mean, in, in two, three, or five years, this is a totally a moot point. But for right now, here in 2023, where we're headed, this is a problem. And the, fa- the fact is, a lot of these cloud systems that are less established than, say, a cloud native product like a NetSuite or a Salesforce or Workday systems that grew up and were created in cloud, this comment does not apply to. But for others that started off on-premise, were on-premise for decades, and now all of a sudden are making the shift to the cloud, that's a problem because you can't take those decades of R&D and functionality, move it over to the cloud in just a matter of two or three years. It's going to take some time until they get there. So that is creating problems for organizations and mismanaged expectations. And the other thing too is that Software vendors, in my opinion, oversell the ease of cloud implementations. And so they're actually creating more problems than they have in years past by saying this is a cloud deployment. It's going to be so much easier than deploying on-premise technology, which I strongly disagree with because, yes, deploying the actual technology is easier in the cloud because you can access it faster. You don't have to install it on your servers. There's not quite as much setup. But that's only, I mean, that's just a tiny fraction of what it takes to deploy technology. When you really deploy technology right, you're doing all the the hard stuff. You're redefining your business processes. You're ensuring you're helping people through the change. You're providing strong project management controls. You're, you know, you're testing, you're doing integration, you're cleaning data. None of that changes with the cloud and software vendors oversell the ease and the cost and the risk of, of implementation. And in, you add to that, and then you take that one step further and add to the trend of big software vendors. I would call out SAP and Microsoft in particular, I think they're particularly bad at this, or, or it's uh, questionable their their uh, their intentions here and, and the impact it's having on the industry. But at both SAP and Oracle, or I'm sorry, SAP and Microsoft and others, there's others out there. Um, they're doing this as well. But SAP and Microsoft are probably the biggest vendors that are guilty of this, and that is essentially forcing their customers off their legacy on-premise systems with a sort of arbitrary sunset deadline that has been set by the software vendor for no other reason other than they want everyone to be in the cloud and they don't want to have to maintain these on-premise legacy systems any longer. So it benefits the software vendors for sure. The question becomes, does it benefit you or not? 
And unfortunately, too many organizations where it's really not going to benefit them necessarily or materially, they're being forced to invest a bunch of money in new technology that they may not necessarily need other than the fact that the software vendor is going to discontinue the old product. So I think when you take those two things, I think those are probably the biggest drivers of the rise in expert witness, as well as some of the other stuff we talked about, you know, uh, labor shortages are going to contribute to that, uh, as well as other trends. But uh, it's a great point. And thank you for for your feedback and comments there, uh, James. I think this is a facetious comment. If not, I'm going to suggest that it should be. And this is from someone on LinkedIn who says, building new features is just like snapping a finger. Um, I assume that that is, uh, or I know that not to be true. And uh, But if you really do mean that and you think I'm wrong, please uh, tell me. But I, I'm going to assume for the time being that that is a facetious comment. And thank you for that comment. Uh, another comment here from uh, Shada on LinkedIn. Agreed, ERP does not always... Um, I'm not sure what the comment means. Agreed, ERP does not always best in breed some more dollars. So I, I think what she's saying is ERP is not always best in breed or, or provide the best capabilities. And so sometimes it'll cost more because of that. And if I misunderstood that, Shonda, Shonda I apologize. And maybe you can clarify your, your comment there. Um, question from who I will continue to call you because I butchered your name the first time, but you on YouTube says, for me here in the UK, your points number five and seven are on point. So those two points were labor disruptions in the market as well as more customer due diligence. So you was suggesting that at least in the UK, he's seeing uh, those two trends uh, play out as well. Um, here's a, another interesting comment and case study from Sam Graham. He says, I helped out or I helped put a tier two ERP system into a $5 billion outfit. So $5 billion of turnover or revenue. 10 years later, they looked at replacing it with a tier one, but after reviewing their options, they decided to stick with their tier two. So I think this is a great point um, that maybe helps us unpack the first trend I talked about or the first prediction I had, which is the beginning of the end for big ERP vendors. Um, I don't think that's true for all ERP vendors, um, to be clear. I think, and, and Sam's helping unpack this a bit, I think it's applying mainly to the larger ERP vendors. I think the smaller ones that are more focused, they're more nimble, um, they're not getting out over their skis. They're not trying to be something they're not. They're not trying to be everything to everyone. Those smaller vendors, I think this comment does not apply to. I think they're they're part of the, not the problem, but they're part of the trend. They're part of what's causing the big ERP vendors to struggle. And I think they will continue to be a thorn in the side of the big ERP vendors. So when you look at um, even companies like NetSuite, I think NetSuite is really disrupting the space since they've been acquired by Oracle because they're, they're really aggressive. If you look at what they're doing, they're very aggressive in the small and mid-sized market. And they're very effective. In some cases, I would argue they're too effective and they're they're overselling their capabilities, but they're disrupting sort of the big ERP model and providing a lower cost option for, for the mid-market and smaller uh, organizations. And even more so when you look at manufacturing specific solutions, like, um, you know, if you look at uh, DCOM or Ecumatica, for example, uh, even Epicor, which is a more established vendor, been around for a long time. Those are those are just good examples of, of targeted, relatively focused solutions. They're going to probably going to keep doing what they do really well, and they're going to go deeper into their focus area while the ERP vendors are struggling to keep that breadth and that sort of mile wide, inch deep approach versus going deep into one area. And, and again, I think there's always going to be a pendulum swing. There's always going to be a case for and against either model. Um, you know, for every new uh, for every problem that's solved by having a focused, targeted tier two solution, 
uh, oftentimes you're creating another problem, which is that focused tier two solution can't do everything. It can't do everything well, like maybe a, uh, an SAP or an Oracle might try to. Um, so then it creates a case for, should we go to one of those big ERP vendors? Cause they can provide more capability, um, but it's going to cost us more. There's more risk. And so th- those are sorts of the decisions and trade-offs that need to be made as you're defining your, your, uh, your, your digital strategy for 2023 or for any year in the future, you need to really look at the pros and cons. Cause even the trends I'm talking about, those are not silver bullet slam dunk solves all your problems sort of predictions or, or trends. They're ones that come with their own trade-offs, but I just think that more organizations are going to find a net positive in those trade-offs than some of the other alternatives or options in the marketplace. So thank you for that, for that, uh, comment. So I'm not going to put this on the screen for those of you watching this versus listening on audio. I'll just read it because it's a long comment that won't fit, but this is from Brent on LinkedIn. He's commenting to Shonda on LinkedIn and says, I agree with Eric's comment that vendors oversell their system and rely on their brand recognition. But in the end, many companies I come across are sold something that they don't really need and would be better served to take a better look at ROI. Most people don't want to learn another huge software that they will use only 10% of the features. Huge, huge waste of money and hurts their efficiency. Very well put. And I think you bring up a, a really good point, Brent, uh, maybe unintentionally. I don't know if you meant to bring this up, but one of the things you'd bring up, which I think is important to note, is that as part of this customer due diligence, you're starting to see customers question, do we really need to buy this entire solution right now? Uh, for example, I'll pick on SAP again. SAP is really good at sort of bundling S4HANA with Concur and Ariba and SuccessFactors and other point solutions that they've acquired over the years. And a lot of times in the past, organizations didn't really question, do we really need Ariba? Can we just use the procurement and supply chain functionality that comes out of the box in S4HANA? Maybe we don't need the power of Ariba. You know, Ariba, for those of you that don't, don't know, is a company that SAP acquired that's a procurement and supply chains type of system, sort of a best of breed solution, but they're trying to integrate it and bundle it with S4HANA now as part of that acquisition and their post-acquisition strategy. But in the past, a lot of organizations wouldn't even question that extra spend. They would just get told by the software vendor sales rep that you need Ariba, it's part of S4HANA, it's, it's going to provide all the capabilities you need. And they sort of bite off on it without questioning that and saying, well, let's compare it to just using S4HANA as is without Ariba. Let's compare and do a fit gap analysis of how that compares and what the cost benefit analysis between those two options might be. And so you're starting to see more organizations that really not only are diligent about what vendor they pick, but once they've picked a vendor, being real deliberate about which modules they buy, how many licenses they buy, when they buy the licenses. One of the biggest things that drives me crazy is when software vendors give you a really sweet deal on software licenses to buy hundreds or thousands of licenses that you're not going to use for two or three years until you get done implementing the solution. And in many cases, you never get to the go live because something happens. You you cut scope or you, you you put parts of the project on hold or God forbid you cancel the entire project, but you're stuck with these licenses that you bought presumably getting a sweet deal once in a lifetime sort of deal that you end up feeling like you have to buy the software. So you really, I think organizations are, are becoming smarter to that, but I think they still could be a lot smarter uh, than they are as it relates to that. I'll pick just maybe one or two more comments. We could probably go for another hour or three uh, on this. This is really interesting stuff. And quite frankly, one of the more engaged live streams audiences that I've had in months, if not longer. So I appreciate appreciate this. Um, here's a question from Solar. I'm not sure if Solar is the name of an individual or a 
an organization, but over on YouTube, uh, talking about web two apps, bridging to web three, um, apps and that sort of web 3.0 for those of you that don't know is sort of the, the metaverse. And, uh, that's another thing, you know, in addition to AI, we, I didn't really have anything as it relates to metaverse and web 3.0. Um, but it is something that's emerging, uh, quickly. And in fact, next week's live stream, um, will feature someone who is focused on web 3.0 and metaverse. So we'll, we'll sort of dive into that topic a bit more in next week's discussion, but, um, in next week's podcast as well, you'll, you'll hear that discussion, but, um, metaverse is something I'm, I'm, I'm on the fence on, to be honest, at least in the short term, I I'm kind of looking and watching to see how it evolves from a business perspective. I, I feel like the consumer use cases are more plentiful, but when you talk about business use cases, there are plenty of them that are merging, but it's still not getting that widespread acceptance. The other problem I have with metaverse kind of ties into a lot of what we've been talking about here today, which is organizations have enough trouble implementing a basic financial and inventory management system. For example, if, if an organization can't implement effectively a financial and inventory management system or a CRM system or whatever, if you can't do that well, then you're not even going to think about a metaverse sort of, you know, swinging for the fences sort of technology, or at least you shouldn't be. So I think it sort of gets back to basic blocking and tackling and being able to, to do the fundamentals of digital transformation. Once you've gotten a certain level of maturity, then yes, emerging cutting edge technologies like metaverse, um, AI and others might be more suitable, but you sort of have to figure out first what, you know, how do you get the basics in place? And I think that's where, that's what, that's why I struggle with metaverse, not because I don't like the technology or think it's not a viable technology, but because I question organizational ability to adapt to the metaverse, at least in the, in the short term. So I think, um, what I may do is, uh, maybe pull in one last comment here. Um, and then we'll sort of wrap it up. And I want to thank you all for your, your feedback. This has been great stuff, but this comment here is from Aaron Dam on LinkedIn. And his comment here is one of the challenges is business tries to hold on to the business processes, which were aged rather than shifting to industry best practice and re-engineering the business process. Although businesses invest in digital transformation, although businesses invest in digital transformation, business tries to hold on to the custom solution built in legacy system and carry on the same old solution to the new system. What are your thoughts? I, I think you're absolutely spot on. Too many organizations are simply putting in technology to automate what they've always done. And I think one of the challenges with the industry that we're seeing that's relatively unique or relatively new, although it's, it's, it's not new, it's just the, the degree to which this is true is accelerating, in my opinion. And that is that technology is changing a lot faster and it's accelerating its pace of change much more so than organizational and human ability to change. Not because we don't want the technology, not because it's not good technology, but because big organizations, especially the, the bigger you are, the more this is true. It's just harder to adapt to these changing technology trends. And because we're human, we like our comfort uh, sweet spots or, or uh, our comfort zones. Um, we're going to revert back to what we know best and what we're comfortable with. That's going to be sort of the gravity, the, the gravity that pulls us back and holds us down is, is the fact that we're comfortable with the way things are today. We have to go out on a limb if we want to change in the future. And that's, that's hard. And as technology changes and accelerates and, and, you know, sort of like if you view, um, you know, this is, this is change in general going this way, technology is going like this and we're just barely moving along and technology is sort of leaving us in the dust as organizations. 
And so I think that's what we have to think about is how do we how do we manage that gap, um, that gap that's getting bigger between current state and potential future state. And I think that's why it's important to be realistic. You know, I think it's okay to really just acknowledge who you are. If you're a risk adverse organization stuck in the past and you're using an, an old green screen AS400, you know it's time to change, but you know you're not quite ready to go to AI in the metaverse yet, then don't go to AI in the metaverse. That's probably too big of a jump. It's too risky. It's questionable business value for you at this point. But maybe just more of an incremental change. Just get onto some modern or semi-modern ERP system or semi-modern technology platform and use that as a starting point. Then you start to build on capabilities and build out your digital maturity from there. But too many organizations just try to do too much in too little time. And it's okay to take that incremental approach. I know software vendors, industry analysts, I'm going to keep picking on them and I probably always will. But the software vendors and industry analysts are always going to push this narrative that you need to change and you need to change now. And consultants do it too. Sales reps do it. Um, consultants that benefit from you investing and over-investing in technology, they're going to always tell you that you need to change. You need to do it now. If you're not doing it now, you're dying. Um, it's time to stop waiting, You know, swing for the fences, make this big, massive technology investment, whatever. That's that's noise. That's sales messaging. That's that's meant to sell more software. That's not necessarily the right answer for you. So I think that's something that, that really needs to be managed and taken with a grain of salt when you hear that message of do a digital transformation now and go big or go home that sort of thing just set that aside especially if you're a risk adverse organization or especially if you struggle with change as it is then yeah push yourself and try to change you need to change i mean i would agree with the general statement that organizations need to change and evolve in general but it doesn't mean you need to do these massive technology investments now it may be more suitable that you do more of an incremental change. And if you're a more risk tolerant organization, perhaps you're a tech company or a high growth, you know, younger company, sure, you can be more aggressive. You can push more change within your organization because your organization can take it. Um, the, the more established legacy organizations that are using really old processes and technologies, it's just going to be harder for them. And that's just the way the world is. And there's no changing that. So uh, rather than try to create an alternate universe where you can just swing for the fences and everything's going to be fine, just acknowledge the fact you as an organization are risk averse. You have trouble changing. You're stuck in the past. That's okay. Let's figure out how to get you out of the past, but it doesn't need to happen overnight. So uh, probably a great point to leave it. Um, thank you again for your your comments here. Love to hear any other feedback you have, even after the fact. I I, I watch the the chats and the streams on these even after um, after we broadcast. So. Really appreciate any any uh, last minute thoughts you might have or anything you think of later on. I'd love to hear your comments here. Okay, great conversation. Thank you, everyone who chimed in on their thoughts around digital strategies and tech trends for 2023. Uh, I'd love to hear your comments. If we didn't get a chance to get to your comment, just leave it in the chat below. I'd love to hear your thoughts. We actually go back and read these comments, uh, even post uh, stream of this podcast. So love to hear your feedback. If there's anything you think we missed or anything you'd add to the list, please drop that in the in the comment section wherever you're listening. So uh, we're going to shift gears. When we come back, we're going to talk through and go through a countdown of the top 10 YouTube videos of 2022. These are the YouTube digital transformation related videos that were the most viewed by you. And uh, this is primarily pulled from my channel. In fact, it's exclusively pulled from my channel. I'm looking at the top 10 for, for my channel. And we're going to go through the top 10 digital transformation YouTube videos from my channel in 2022. But before we do that, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Give me the 
If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 99. The last episode before we get to number 100, obviously. I'm excited for episode number 100 next week because we are going to count down the top 10 interviews of 2022. So we're going to play you clips of the top 10 interviews that we had throughout the year. We probably had, I don't know how many, 60 or 70 different interviews throughout 2022. And we're going to play you the 10 that we think are the most valuable, the most interesting, the most exciting to hear, the most different. And so we're going to play you those interviews next week on this podcast, episode number 100. So be sure to stick around for that. But before we get there, we want to close out this episode in this last segment by going through our top 10 YouTube videos of 2022. So if you go to my YouTube channel, you can see you know how many people are watching my videos, how many people are liking it. You can read comments, all that kind of stuff. So what I thought I'd do for you here is just summarize what the top 10 most watched videos are, and I'm going to play you clips from four of them. We, I picked out four that I think are uh, particularly interesting. I'm sorry, it's actually three that I'm going to play for you that I think are particularly interesting, and uh, we'll, we'll kind of roll through it here. So let's uh, jump into it. So coming in at number 10, our number 10 most watched YouTube video in 2022 with 28,511 views is an independent review of Odoo. So if you're interested in open source software, including Odoo, that video did particularly well in this year, in, in 2022, and that was number 10, independent review of Odoo. Uh, number nine, with 32,186 views, was or is the top 10 supply chain management trends predictions for 2022. So it was a video that was published about a year ago, leading into 2022. These were the supply chain management trends and predictions I had for 2022. And again, that was number nine, had 32,186 views. Number eight was what is organizational change management? That video had 36,664 views in 2022. And in fact, that's a video I'll probably update soon because I filmed that a long time ago. I feel like it's uh, slightly outdated, but still performing very well on my YouTube channel. Um, but I do also have other organizational change management related videos that you might want to check out as well. And the first clip that I'm actually going to play for you is the one that comes in at number seven, which is top ERP systems for 2022 to 2023. And I'm actually going to stop and play you this video. Um, this is one, by the way, at number seven that has 441,813 views on YouTube. And this is a countdown of the top 10 ERP systems, cross-industry, cross-geography, uh, very broad general ranking. I've also done a number of top 10 rankings for different situations, different industry verticals, different geographies, um, different company sizes, that sort of thing. But this is a, a first pass or, or an attempt 
to provide a general top 10 list with all things being equal that's just sort of across the board top 10 that you know may or may not be applicable to you as an organization because you might be in a certain industry that would have a different top 10 list in which case we might have a top 10 list for it or at the very least we can provide you guidance on how to select the system that might work best for you in that in that situation uh, but why don't we roll the clip of the top 10 ERP systems for 2022. When embarking on an ERP implementation, choosing the best ERP software for your organization is one of the most important things you can do. So what I want to do today is talk about our independent and technology agnostic ranking of the top 10 systems in the ERP software market. And there's been some significant changes to this year's top 10 list when compared to last year. So be sure to stick around to see who the new number one vendor is. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. We're an independent consulting firm that helps clients through their digital transformation journeys. And with hundreds of different ERP options in the marketplace, it can be overwhelming to figure out which system is the best for you. When you add to the fact that software vendors are biased and most industry peers and players in the industry are biased as well, it can be a bit overwhelming and daunting. So being an independent and technology agnostic firm gives us the luxury of evaluating and ranking the top 10 systems as we see them related to how our clients select and implement these different solutions. Before I jump into the top 10 though, I wanna talk about the methodology we used. The methodology we use is based on our customer's experience with these different systems. So we evaluate and help clients implement all types of different solutions across a number of different industries. So we look at things like overall functionality, the maturity of the system, the ease of integration, the flexibility, the overall customer adoption rate. Those are just a few of the criteria we use to identify what are those best systems in the marketplace. And the other caveat I'll add is that this is a general ranking. So you might have very specific needs in a very specific industry that might shuffle or scramble this top 10 list for your specific needs. So the idea here is to provide a general top 10 ranking based on general needs across multiple industries and geographies throughout the world. So let's just jump right into the top 10 list. Coming in at number 10 is Acumatica. Acumatica is a software vendor that was not in our top 10 list last year, but is a new entry into our top 10 list this year. And the reason Acumatica has emerged as an up and coming player is largely because they've defined a very clear niche in the marketplace. They tend to focus on manufacturing distribution organizations. The product has a very clear user interface and the pricing model is very conducive to the small and mid market, especially if you're a low volume, high margin type of manufacturing or distribution company, it can be a very cost effective solution with a very high ROI. And the reason for that is because they have a very unique pricing model where they price based on transaction volumes. So if you have a lot of high volume, low margin types of products, it may not be a good fit, but if you have a moderate to low volume, but higher margin types of products, it can actually be very cost effective for organizations. In addition to the extensive user interface, there's also R&D dollars that are being pumped into the product via private equity firm that just bought the firm not too long ago. And that's always a good sign of a product that's up and coming when there's private equity money behind it. So you combine all these things together and that's a reason to put Acumatica at number 10 on our list. Coming in at number nine is Salesforce and Financial Force. Now this is a product that's actually dropped a couple notches in our ranking from last year. Not so much because the product itself has changed or gotten less desirable, but because there's other vendors that have made bigger strides and bigger advancements and we've seen greater success with than Salesforce. But having said that, it's important to note that many people view Salesforce as purely a CRM system, but really Salesforce and Financial Force and Force.com platform, that all has become somewhat of a ERP platform for 
general ERP capabilities, even outside of CRM. So I mentioned financial force on the financial side. You have extensions like Rootstock, which is a vendor that's built on Salesforce that provides manufacturing ERP capabilities, just to name two examples of products that provide ERP-like capabilities. Now, Salesforce is a good fit for organizations that might be looking for more of a best of breed and a flexible type of solution where they can bolt on different types of systems, different modules to meet different needs as the organization grows. But along with that comes a dark side, which is that a lot of organizations find that that flexibility can create a lot more complexity in terms of integration and cost. It also puts more pressure on your IT department to maintain that system. So those are some things to think about, but in general, that's enough to land Salesforce and Financial Force at number nine on our list. Coming in at number eight on our list is Odoo. And Odoo is an open source ERP system. It's new to our top 10 list, although you may recall seeing it on our top 10 list of ERP systems for small business. This year, it made the general top 10 list, largely because we've seen it scale for some mid-sized organizations as well, and for the general functionality and capabilities that the product has expanded to in recent years. So just to hone in on this open source concept, open source can be a good thing in terms of a price tag for the software licensees, but the downside is that as you start to add on different modules and different capabilities, that number could actually go up, that price tag can actually increase. The other downside of Odoo is that it can be complex to maintain. So if you don't have a fairly sophisticated and mature IT department that can maintain the complexities of an open source system that just requires more IT sophistication, that can be a downside as well. It can also be a downside when it comes to scaling for large organizations, but for small and mid-market organizations, Odoo can be a very good fit, especially if you're looking for something with maximum flexibility and maximum modularity to be able to tie together different modules uh, within the organization. So with all that being said, that's enough to land Odoo at number eight on our list. Coming in at number seven is Sage X3, which is a product that fell a couple notches from last year's ranking. Again, not so much because Sage X3 is less desirable than it was before, but because other vendors have made further advancements in their product. But Sage X3 in general is a great product. It's a core financial system. It's great for manufacturing and distribution types of organizations, as well as organizations that aren't in manufacturing and distribution. It's a good tier two alternative to some of the bigger ERP vendors in the marketplace. And some of the downside risks of the product include a couple things. One is that we find it's not as scalable for really large and complex organizations as some of the other products in our top 10 list. So if you're a larger, more sophisticated global organization, it may test the boundaries of your organization. And the second thing is the user interface isn't quite as clean or user-friendly as some of the other systems in the marketplace. But with all that being said, that's enough to land Sage X3 at number seven on our list. Coming in at number six on our list is Infor Cloud Suite. This is a product that's actually moved up in our ranking this year. And one caveat I have to throw out there though is that the Infor Cloud Suite umbrella is very broad and it may be a bit misleading because there's actually multiple systems within the Infor Cloud Suite umbrella. They're trying to brand or rebrand the product as Cloud Suite, but you still have the segments of different products that they work with. Now, M3 is a product that we often see in manufacturing situations. We also see Infor Sightline as one of the solutions that we see in manufacturing types of environments. And then there's also Infor Nexus, which is a supply chain management solution and actually one of our top 10 supply chain management systems in the market. And the reason I bring up these three different solutions is because Infor Cloud Suite involves a lot of different systems. And the system within the Cloud Suite umbrella that's best for you is gonna depend on your needs. But in general, when we look at the Infor Cloud Suite 
umbrella, we find that it has a great, robust, and wide variety of business processes and capabilities that fit a lot of different situations, especially organizations that are in manufacturing and distribution, but we also see Infor being used by a lot of non-manufacturing organizations as well. They also have a lot of R&D dollars as a result of Coke Industries putting in a lot of money into the acquisition of the company. And now the downside of Infor though, just like every product in our top 10 list, they have a downside as well. The downside with Infor is largely the product roadmap. Just understanding which of these systems to piece together to give you the solution you need, that can be very confusing. It can be very daunting. And it's important to really make sure you're honing in on the right solution, whether it's M3 or Sightline or Nexus or some of the other solutions that they offer. So that's one thing. The other thing is the cost of the solution tends to be a bit higher than some of the others that we've covered so far in our top 10 list. But having said that, those cost differences can oftentimes be negotiated away. But with all that being said, that's enough to land in for Cloud Suite at number six on our list. Coming in at number five on our list is IFS. And IFS was in our top five last year. It actually dropped just one slot to number five this year. It's a great product, strong enough to finish in our top five. And the reason it is in our top five is because it is a very focused solution. It's not trying to be everything to everyone and it tends to focus on industrial manufacturing and distribution types of companies. So if you're a company that has a lot of project management or asset management or maintenance and repair types of functions, IFS is a very good fit. Now, the reason it fell from number four to number five is largely because it's such a narrow focus, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but when we're looking at a broad general ranking like this one, there's other solutions that can provide broader capabilities to meet a number of different clients' needs. But if you're one of the organizations that fit within that sweet spot of IFS, you might actually put IFS at number one on your list. So it's a matter of understanding what those strengths of the product are relative to your needs. And it has a good user interface. There's a lot of R&D dollars being spent on the product itself. And the organization is also focusing on expanding its value-added reseller network, its network of implementation partners, if you will. So those are some up and coming aspects of IFS that I think will prove that it has a very bright future. Now, the downside of the product is that it could be a little more expensive than some of the solutions in the marketplace. We find that dollar for dollar, you're going to spend a bit more on IFS, but you may be getting better capabilities if it's the right fit for you. And then the other big downside of IFS is largely perception based, which is that a lot of organizations haven't heard of IFS. They're a European based company. They have a good presence in Europe and they're still expanding and still trying to increase their market share in other parts of the world. So as far as referenceability, and having peers that use the product, you're not gonna have as many peers using IFS as maybe some of the other products in our top 10 list, but that's not necessarily a terrible thing either. So all that being said, is enough to land IFS at number five on our list. Coming in at number four on our list is SAP S4 HANA. It's actually moved up a couple slots from last year, largely because they're starting to get some traction and momentum on building that maturity that they've struggled with for the last few years since HANA was released several years ago. Now, S4 HANA is very strong in financials, inventory management, sort of your vanilla basic ERP functionality. So it's really one of the best when it comes to financial flexibility and financial capabilities, GL capabilities, product costing, all that stuff. Now, where S4 HANA tends to struggle is once you get outside the core and you start to look at other advanced capabilities like manufacturing or advanced planning, product lifecycle management, even some of the CRM capabilities are lacking. So it's still not as mature of a product as it could be and will be someday. And it's certainly not as mature of a product as 
the old ECC product was, or even R3, which are the old legacy SAP products. So that's probably the biggest thing holding back the product. Now on the flip side, there are some maturity issues with some of the expanded capabilities, but what SAP has done to partially address that is to go acquire other companies. So they've acquired products like Ariba on the procurement side of things, success factors on human capital management, Concur as it relates to time and expense. So they've become somewhat of a best of breed provider, but with that comes a dark side, which is now you have multiple systems that you need to tie together. So the SAP roadmap is still a bit kludgy. It's a bit hard to navigate in terms of understanding what products might be the right fit for you within the SAP umbrella. But having said all that, just based on history and based on SAP's track record, especially with the larger, more complex organizations, I'm fairly confident that SAP will get there and S4HANA will get there soon enough. And we actually have seen a significant amount of progress here in the last couple of years as it relates to that. So having said all that, that's enough to land SAP S4HANA at number four on our list. Coming in at number three on our list is Oracle ERP Cloud, which along with SAP is one of the gold standards for larger Fortune 1000 types of organizations. And when we compare Oracle to SAP Cloud and really just to explain why Oracle is ahead of SAP, it's largely because Oracle is a more flexible product. It's something that can be tailored more easily than S4HANA can be in general. It struggles with a lot of the same things that SAP struggles with with S4HANA in that Oracle ERP Cloud is still a work in progress. There's still a lot of advanced manufacturing capabilities that aren't baked into the system yet. And there's still a lot of missing components of Oracle ERP Cloud. But having said all that, Oracle ERP Cloud is, is a very broad and robust product that can meet a lot of different industry needs, especially if you're a diversified, larger, more complex organization. And if you value flexibility and ease of integration, Oracle can be a great fit. So with all that in mind, that's enough to land Oracle ERP Cloud at number three on our list. Coming in at number two is last year's number one solution, which is Oracle NetSuite. And still a very solid, respectable ranking at number two in our top 10 list, but it did drop. And the reason for that is largely because we're seeing some concerning trends with NetSuite. But let me start with the positive things. The positive aspects of Oracle NetSuite are, first of all, that it's one of the pioneer software as a service types of solutions. So it's been in the cloud for 20 years, well before all the other vendors try to play catch up. So they have a very mature solution that's been in the cloud the entire time it's been around. It was built for the cloud. It has an architecture built for the cloud as well. It also focuses on small and mid-market companies. So if you're a fairly vanilla small and mid-market company and you're looking to upgrade from QuickBooks or your basic accounting system, NetSuite can be a logical next step in your evolution through the digital transformation. Now, the downside of Oracle NetSuite is, first of all, the pricing is fairly high, especially for a small and mid-sized organization. It can actually be pretty costly in the long term because you have a recurring subscription model with a lot of hidden costs that can actually escalate over time. The other downside that really held it back from being in the number one slot is that we're starting to see more issues with implementations with Oracle NetSuite. And this is just strictly a hypothesis, but my theory is that Oracle, since they acquired NetSuite, has gotten so aggressive with pushing further into the small and mid-market, but also pushing upstream to larger organizations. It seems as though they may be getting over their heads in some cases with where they're selling Oracle NetSuite. So that's something to keep in mind as well, is making sure that you understand whether or not Oracle NetSuite really can meet your needs and that you're getting an agnostic view of that evaluation. And then the final thing that really holds back Oracle NetSuite 
is the fact that it does have a lack of flexibility when compared to other systems in the marketplace. So if you don't like the way NetSuite was built, it's very hard to change when you compare it to say a Microsoft E365 or an Oracle ERP cloud, or even some of the other systems in the marketplace. So that lack of flexibility relative to the other systems is partially what holds it back. But again, very solid, respectable, number two on our top 10 ranking for this year. Coming in at number one is a new number one, very different from last year, which is last year's number two system, and that is Microsoft D365. The primary reason why D365 is number one is partially because there's two different solutions that D365 offers. There's Business Central, which is built for small and mid-market companies, those with more vanilla or straightforward requirements. And then there's Finance and Operations, which is for larger, more complex organizations. So you have two distinctly different systems meeting distinct needs of different types of organizations. But on top of that, you also have the flexibility and the user interface of Microsoft. A lot of organizations are comfortable with that user interface. A lot of organizations value the flexibility that D365 provides, especially when you compare it to say an Oracle NetSuite or an SAP S4 HANA, Microsoft D365 can be a lot more flexible. Now, the dark side to this, though, is that just because you can change the D365 system doesn't mean you should. And a lot of organizations get tripped up during the implementation because they try to over-customize or over-change the system the way it was meant to be used. The other appealing factor of Microsoft Dynamics is the fact that it's so easy to integrate with other systems and that it has that Microsoft look and feel. Those are some of the common reasons why many of our clients opt to go with D365. Now, one last dark side that I'll throw in here, even though they're number one on our list, the biggest dark side of using D365 is their value-added reseller network. It is a complete mess. There are just way too many providers out there that are selling D365, they're implementing D365, but they may or may not be qualified to do so. I'd say of all the vendors in our top 10 list, Microsoft probably has the least amount of control and oversight of their reseller network. And that's a big problem when it comes to implementation. So if you do choose Microsoft Dynamics 365, just know that the product itself may be ranked number one on our list. But when you choose the implementation partner, you want to make sure you look carefully at the options you have, because that whole ecosystem has a high degree of variability in the competencies in terms of the implementation providers. So all that being said is enough to land Microsoft D365 at number one on our list. So while we just shared the top 10 list with you, there's a lot more systems that didn't make our top 10 list than did. Some examples include two vendors that were in our top 10 list last year, but fell out of the top 10. And those are ServiceNow and Workday. And it's not so much that those products are inferior compared to the other top 10, but they are just not as complete of an ERP product as the others in our top 10. That's the main reason. The other reason why Workday fell out of the top 10 is largely because we're seeing a lot of implementation issues with, with customers that are implementing the product. I don't know how much of that is a reflection of the product itself versus the implementers trying to implement the product, but either way, it's enough to knock Workday out of the top 10. And ServiceNow is, is somewhat of a myopically focused solution that can be used for ERP purposes or ERP light purposes, but it's not a true robust ERP system as many of the other vendors are. In addition to those two systems that fell out of our top 10, there's a whole host of other systems that are great products that you could argue should be in the top 10. So you have products like Epicore, which is a product that's very strong in the manufacturing and distribution space. You have a product called DCOM, which focuses on process manufacturing. You have Aptian, which is a great product portfolio with a lot of private equity investment behind it. 
So those are just a few examples of some of the products that didn't make the top 10. But what I'll note is that even if a product didn't make the top 10, doesn't mean it's not in your top 10 or shouldn't be on your shortlist. So be sure you take this all with a grain of salt and really look to your specific requirements to understand where you could use the most help and where the technology can help you the most. So I hope you found this information useful. I encourage you to download our annual digital transformation report, which includes the top 10 rankings of ERP systems, as well as warehouse management systems, supply chain management systems, CRM, all other types of technology. That same report also provides a host of best practices as it relates to the people and process and technology side of digital transformations. So I hope you found this information useful and have a great day. All right, well, we are counting down the top 10 digital transformation YouTube videos from my YouTube channel in 2022. That was number seven. That was the top 10 ERP systems for 2022 to 2023 that had 41,813 views. We're gonna to get to the top six here in just a moment, but first we're gonna take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 99. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday. And we are here counting down the top 10 digital transformation YouTube videos for 2022. And we are at number six. Number six is top 10 supply chain terms and definitions, which had 48,385 views in 2022. And uh, this video was interesting because I remember when I filmed it, I remember thinking it was just so basic and so fundamental that no one would want to watch it. And uh, it actually is performing extremely well. Not only is it number six for the year, but if you were to look just in the last 90 days, it's probably in the top three. It's one that's starting to really go viral. But at, at the time that we're recording this podcast, it had 48,385 views for the year. It has more than that in totality, but um, it, it uh, had 48,000 for the year. Coming in number five, what is digital transformation? Another video that I've had up for probably two and a half or so years, maybe three years now. Might be due for a refresh here at some point soon, but that one had 52,443 views. Coming in at number four, what is Microsoft Dynamics 365 slash introduction to Microsoft Dynamics 365? We talked earlier in this episode how D365 is the number one selected and implemented software solution amongst our client base. So perhaps it's not surprising that it's also the number four most watched video on my YouTube channel with 62,683 views. Coming in at number three, what is SAP S4HANA? An introduction to SAP. That one had 67,663 views in the year. And then number two, which is the one we're gonna play you a clip from because it's a, it's a good overview. It's just called, and actually it's a very controversial video. I would say this one is probably the most controversial video I've ever published on my YouTube channel. 
And it's reflected not just in the fact that it's gone viral, but also in the fact if you read the comments, um, you'll get a lot of mixed feedback. Um, some agreeing with me and some telling me that I have no idea what I'm talking about and that I'm completely wrong. So I love videos like this because it, it stimulates a conversation and it's a conversation that not enough of us have in the industry. I think we're afraid to debate or we're afraid to uh, have, quote unquote, the wrong answer. So I think it's important for us to have an open mind and to think through all different angles of this. So why don't we roll the clip of ERP software, the end of enterprise technology software as we know it, a.k.a. the death of ERP software. The thumbnail says the death of ERP software, which I think is part of why it went viral because it's a, almost a, a jarring title. Uh, but just so you know, this was number two. It had 92,334 views in 2022. And most notably, if you look at it, I, I think this was published in June or July. So it's it's only been about half the year that it's even been live on my YouTube channel. So that 92,000 views came in a relatively short period of time. If we were to just look at the last six months, that video would definitely be number one by, by a long shot. But we're looking at the entire year. This video came in at number two, ERP software, the end of enterprise tech as we know it. Let's go ahead and roll the clip. And uh, I'd also love to hear your comments on what you think about this concept in this video. ERP software has been dying a slow death for the last few decades. But the question now is, has the time come for the end of ERP software as we know it? That's what I want to talk about here today. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. We're an independent consulting firm that helps clients throughout the world reach their third stages of digital transformation success. And in my time in the ERP software space for the last 25 or more years, we've been hearing this refrain that the ERP software industry might be dying. And for years now, industry pundits and analysts have talked about whether or not ERP software might be dying right now, or if we're coming up on the death of ERP, as you might call it. And so the question I want to cover here today is, what is the case for ERP software potentially dying out? And if ERP software is going to die and fade away into the past memories, then what is the future of enterprise technology? And that's exactly what I'll talk about here today. So when unpacking this question of, is ERP software dead? We have to ask ourselves now and in the future, can ERP software be everything to everyone? And in essence, that's what enterprise resource planning software is. It's software that's intended to tie together an entire organization. It's software that provides common solutions for companies in a multitude of different industries. And the reality is that it's very difficult for ERP software vendors to provide capabilities and functionality that can be everything to everyone. In other words, there's different types of industry needs, different priorities within the same industries, and other things that create tension or pressure on ERP systems as they exist today. The end result of ERP software's inability to be everything to everyone is the advent of best of breed solutions. In other words, you see systems like Salesforce on the CRM side or Workday on the human capital management side. Those are two examples of systems that aren't ERP systems, but they're systems that focus on one specific function within organizations. So in the case of Salesforce, they're focusing on helping automate sales and customer service business processes. Workday, for example, automates HR business processes. And the reasons that companies such as Workday and Salesforce exist is largely because ERP systems can't be everything to everyone. So what I think we're seeing are the early stages of ERP software slowly dying and giving up market share to upstarts such as Workday, Salesforce, and other software vendors that are trying to attack the vulnerabilities of the one-size-fits-all aspect of ERP software. In the past, one of the greatest assets and strengths of ERP software 
was that it was an integrated solution. It was one common solution that users and employees would log into, whether they're finance people or warehouse management people or salespeople, HR people, whatever the case may be, is one common platform, one common integrated solution. And what has happened over time, because ERP software is evolving so quickly and changing so quickly, and because of the fact that ERP software is moving to the cloud, stay tuned for more on the cloud discussion, because I'm gonna come back to that point. But what we're seeing as a result of these trends is that ERP vendors, especially the big ones now, are out acquiring different solutions that are no longer integrated. So in other words, rather than building their own software that's fully integrated from the ground up, they're instead going out and acquiring solutions and selling those solutions to their customers. Just as an example or a few examples, SAP has gone out and bought Ariba and SuccessFactors to address some of the vulnerabilities or weaknesses of the core SAP solution. Microsoft has gone out and bought Navision and Exapta and other solutions, and now they're trying to wrap it up into one solution with D365. And Oracle has been known for a long time as an acquisition-minded organization that went out and bought JD Edwards and Siebel and PeopleSoft and some other solutions. So what we're seeing in the marketplace is a strength of ERP systems, which is that full integration, is no longer as much of a strength as it used to be. So now the question becomes, is there real value still in deploying ERP systems if we're not gaining that strength of the past? Now, I mentioned before the cloud evolution with ERP systems, which in general is a good thing and organizations are largely embracing the cloud. They're not all there yet in terms of adoption, but they're moving quickly to the cloud. But one of the things we're seeing is as ERP vendors move their flagship products to the cloud, it's exposing a lot of vulnerabilities and it's showing how hard it is to move from an on-premise type of environment to a cloud environment, which requires, in many cases, an entire rewrite of the software that they spent decades building. So now what we're seeing is a time in history where ERP systems are not fully developed. They're not mature. There's a lot of weaknesses in the software because they haven't finished that migration from on-premise to the cloud. So we're at a unique moment in history in the ERP software space in that ERP systems aren't playing to their strengths in that way as well, in addition to the lack of integration I mentioned a moment ago. The other thing that cloud is doing is it's further perpetuating the first point I made, which is that you've got these upstart best of breed solutions that can be developed and deployed quickly or relatively quickly to organizations throughout the world. And that's creating more pressure and more competition for the traditional ERP vendors. So the fact that cloud is evolving so quickly and becoming such a mainstream software for organizations throughout the world means that we're seeing a slow death of ERP software in that regard as well. ERP systems have had a bad rap over the years for being inflexible. That hasn't really changed a whole lot, although I will say ERP systems are a lot more flexible now than they were 20 or 30 years ago. However, organizations and their pace of change and the macroeconomic forces that are forcing them to change, I would argue, is changing a lot faster than ERP systems are able to change. I mentioned before how these big, massive ERP systems take a long time to develop and write and make changes to the code and that sort of thing. And that just takes a long time, especially when the world is changing so quickly supply chains are being disrupted, geopolitical forces are changing the way organizations work, and organizations just in general are having to change and respond quicker than ERP software oftentimes will allow. And for that reason, you're seeing organizations take less of a full integrated ERP system approach and more of a best of breeds solution approach to identifying the best technology or technologies for specific parts of their business rather than doing massive overhauls of their entire operations. 
So look to this inflexibility of ERP software to be something that contributes to the potential death of ERP systems as we know it today. So all of these trends I've talked about so far are fueling this trend towards less of a focus on single systems and more of a focus on general platforms that can be used to deploy different types of technologies. In other words, focusing on a platform or interoperability of multiple systems. Some may call it best of breed, which is historically what we've referred to it as. And that is essentially where we have a platform that we might use, such as say a ServiceNow or a Palantir. Uh, even Salesforce is another example of a software vendor that provides more of a platform rather than just a software solution. And that platform allows you to mix and match different types of technologies and bolt them together into a unified workflow. So in other words, you have alternatives to the big ERP systems now that you didn't have before to where you can more feasibly integrate different systems and deploy different technologies throughout your organization without having to feel like you have to have one single vendor provide it all. It goes back to the point of ERP systems not being able to be everything to everyone and trying to adjust to that via this concept of platforms, interoperability, and best of breed. So the fact that you have these options now with platforms, with ServiceNow, Palantir, and some of these other software platform providers is further eroding the dominant market share that ERP systems have historically enjoyed in the enterprise technology space. So what does this mean for your digital strategy? Should you be considering ERP software? Should you avoid considering ERP software? It's a good question and I don't have a 100% one size fits all answer. But what I will say is that you really wanna keep an open mind and not be solely focused on just a single ERP system as your only option. There's simply too many options out there in the marketplace. And if you wanna define a digital strategy that is most aligned with your business needs, your goals, your priorities, your culture, your risk tolerance, all that stuff, you need to really consider all the options you have and look to not only where technology is today, but where it's headed in the future and make sure you find that fit that's the best aligned with your organizational needs and objectives. For more information on how to define your digital strategy and some of the other considerations you should think about in addition to what I've talked about here today, I encourage you to download our digital transformation report, which is an annual report we publish each year that highlights some of the best practices and lessons learned that we have from working with clients throughout the world in their digital transformations. It also contains a number of top 10 rankings, reviews and comparisons of different technologies that you might consider as part of your digital strategy. So I encourage you to download that paper in the link below in the description field. I've also included links to other resources I think will help you through your digital transformation journey. So I hope you found this information useful and hope you have a great day. Okay, that was our number two YouTube video, most watched YouTube video of 2022. That's called the ERP software, the end of enterprise technology as we know it, 92,334 views in 2022 so far. And I would love to hear your comments. What do you think of that video? Do you agree, disagree, anything you'd add to the conversation? Drop it in the chat if you don't mind in the comments below. Love to hear your feedback there. It's a, it's, it's a debate that's worth continuing into the new year. And as you hear and think through some of these concepts in that video, I'd love to hear your feedback there. So we're down to our number one video. What was the most watched video on my YouTube channel for 2022? We're gonna get to that after a quick break, but first we'll take that break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. 
Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 99. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. So be sure to subscribe and check us out wherever you listen or watch. And we're up to our number one most watched YouTube video from my YouTube channel about digital transformation. And this might be the most basic video on the channel, and maybe that's why it does so well. Uh, in fact, I have a few more uh, already filmed sort of related to this topic that will be released in late December into January um, as the editing process completes here at third stage. But the number one video, the most watched video on my channel, which I believe was also the most watched video last year in 2021 as well, and this video is called What is ERP Software? Here's everything you need to know. This video just barely beat out the number two video, most watched video, Number two was the death of ERP software that had 92,000-ish views. This video, what is ERP software, had 95,431 in uh, 2022. But overall, I believe that video is closing in on 200,000 views total, which is one of the most popular videos of all time on my YouTube channel. So let's go ahead and roll this video because I think it's an interesting one. I'd be curious to hear your feedback. Let's roll the video, what is ERP software? ERP software or enterprise resource planning software has been around for a long time. It's helped a lot of organizations improve and become more effective and efficient. But what exactly is ERP software? I'm gonna give that answer here today. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. We're an independent consulting firm that helps clients through their digital transformation and ERP implementation journeys. And I've been in the ERP software space now for over 20 years. And whenever I'm talking to family or students or someone who's not familiar with the ERP space that I'm in, People often ask, what in the world is ERP and what does that mean? And I mentioned before that enterprise resource planning is what it stands for, but there's a lot more to it than that. And I'm gonna talk about that here today. I mentioned that ERP stands for enterprise resource planning. And ERP is actually an evolution from some older technology that was really originated with a lot of manufacturing organizations. And that software was called MRP, Material Resource Planning. So the origin of MRP came to be when a lot of larger manufacturing organizations were finding that they were struggling with managing their entire manufacturing operations. They had trouble tracking customer orders and tracking demand, tracking what kind of parts and supplies they would need to purchase to be able to meet and fulfill customer demand. So MRP systems were a way to handle that. It was a way to manage the tracking of what supplies and raw materials we might need to manufacture for our customers. It was a way to manage the manufacturing shop floor so that we could prioritize orders and make sure that we maximized throughput. 
And it was really a way to address the whole movement in the 90s toward lean manufacturing and trying to maximize manufacturing efficiency. In, in the US, a lot of US manufacturers were struggling with manufacturing efficiency and manufacturing quality, and they were being beat by Japanese manufacturing organizations at the time. So MRP systems were a way to help organizations of all origins and all nationalities to help them better become more efficient and more effective. So over time, MRP evolved and morphed into something more than just a manufacturing solution. It started to focus on warehouse management and procurement and financials and accounting, even HCM or human capital management or customer relationship management on the sales side. It took the core of MRP and started to expand in other parts of the enterprise to where organizations were moving towards single systems that could tie together the entire organization, provide one unified data set, provide a common workflow across the organization, and for lack of a better term, provide one system that provided all the operations and data and transparency into what was happening enterprise-wide. And so that's the whole evolution of how ERP came to be. It really traces its origins back decades ago when enterprise technology was first emerging. Now there are a plethora of ERP software providers in the marketplace. The biggest ones, the ones that are most commonly used by bigger organizations are companies like SAP. Oracle is another one. Microsoft provides its own ERP solution. Those are the three biggest ones and a lot of organizations and industry analysts will refer to those larger ERP systems as the tier one ERP systems. Those are the ones that are typically better suited for larger organizations, multinationals, more complex organizations, multi-location types of organizations. Those tier one providers are generally trying to provide a breadth of functionality that can meet the needs of those organizations. There's also tier two ERP providers, and these are the providers that are more niche focused solutions. They might focus on one industry, might focus on one set of capabilities. Just to give you a few examples, Epicor and Infor, for example, are two manufacturing ERP systems that are very common in the manufacturing space, but you don't see them a lot in other industries. You don't see them, for example, in a lot of financial services organizations or professional services organizations. They tend to focus more on manufacturing and distribution and nothing else. So that is in another example or another segment of the ERP space is that whole tier two market. And then you have your tier three or industry niche solutions that are, there are probably dozens or hundreds of different ERP solutions that fall into that segment. They're either smaller, simpler solutions that can provide capabilities to specific industries or perhaps certain functions or capabilities within ERP. They may not even be providing full ERP capability. They may be focusing on just one small segment within ERP. And like I said, there's a ton of different options and solutions in that space. So overall, if we look at all the different types of ERP systems out there, there are easily dozens, if not hundreds, of ERP systems that can be used for your organization. Now I talked about how ERP evolved from the need to have a single unified vision and visibility into how an organization works. And typically the going in proposition with ERP implementations is that you're gonna have one ERP system that can do everything that you would need technology to do 
for your organization. Now, that is an ideal situation. It's a perfect world scenario, but the reality is, is most organizations have unique needs and unique challenges that can't be met by one single ERP system that's trying to be everything to everyone. So what the single ERP system model has done is it's created a niche or a void that's being filled by what we call best of breed ERP systems. And these are systems that are not meant to be one single ERP system that's going to be everything for everyone within your organization, but it might be that you're focusing on different segments of your business. So for example, within your sales organization, you might have CRM or customer relationship management software. Within your HR department, you might use a separate or a different human capital management software that specializes in that. And Workday, for example, is a good example of a system that provides just HCM capabilities. You might have a different system that provides financial and accounting capabilities. And you could also, in addition to those examples, be using a core back office ERP system to tie it all together. So best of breed systems is a common trend that we're seeing in the market. And it's in some ways more complex because now you have multiple systems that you have to tie together. But in other ways, it provides more flexibility. It provides more precise fit with what your unique business needs might be. And there's certainly trade-offs to both the best of breed model as well as the single ERP model. But when talking about ERP, it's important to look at the whole picture of what are those spectrum and continuum of options available to you in the marketplace. Now, if you've done any research on ERP software in general, you've probably seen that ERP implementations quite commonly fail. In fact, many statistics put the failure rate at above 80% of organizations that try to implement ERP, whether it's a tier one system, a tier two or three system, or a single ERP, best of breed ERP, doesn't really matter. The failure rate is fairly high. So the question becomes, if the technology is great and there's so much demand for this technology, how could they possibly fail as often as they do? And if you check out my channel and some of the other videos on my channel, just search the word failure and you'll find a bunch of videos I've created about how to avoid failure, why projects fail, what some of the common challenges are. But in a nutshell, the reason ERP implementations typically fail is not because of the technology, but it's because of the operational and the people side of things. The technology in general is very robust, it's very sophisticated, it's innovative, it can do a lot of different things. That's usually not the problem, although technology can create complications during implementation. But the more common challenges and problems with ERP implementations are that we haven't adequately addressed our business process improvements, we haven't adequately addressed our organizational change management or our people needs. So in other words, and to put it simply, people don't like to change. And because they don't like to change, new technology, no matter how great it is, is going to be difficult for your organization to adapt to. So in its simplest terms, people and processes are why ERP implementations fail. Like I said, I encourage you to watch some of the other videos on my YouTube channel that go into that topic in more detail. But in general, that's why implementations fail. So the question becomes, how do we implement ERP software? If most of them fail, what can we do differently to implement well? And to simplify and to summarize what I've also talked about in other videos on my YouTube channel, the first thing is to find the right software or technology that's the best fit for your organization. That's kind of the first step. That's the minimum ante that you need to be able to succeed is to make sure that the software or technology you're implementing is a good fit with what your needs are 
and make sure you get an independent assessment and view and an objective evaluation of the different options in the marketplace so you can find the best technology for your organization. A second critical success factor is to ensure that your organization is aligned on what it wants to be when it grows up. A lot of times organizations are trying to implement ERP software at a time of turmoil, at a time of misalignment, or at a time of strategic misalignment where the organization isn't on the same page with the direction it's going, it doesn't have a clear vision, and then you try to overlay new technology on top of that, and that's a recipe for failure. So making sure you have clear alignment on your overall organization is very important. And again, I've included some videos below that will help you further dive into that topic. And then the implementation itself. When we focus on the implementation, it's important not to focus too much on the technology, but to shift some of the time, resources, and attention from technology over to the people and process side of things. If we do the people and process side of things very well, and we also have alignment, and we've also picked the right software or technology for our organization, we have the best chances to succeed. But the problem is most organizations fail in one or more of those three critical success factors. And like I said, I encourage you to download some of the content I've included links to below that'll dive more into what you need to do to be successful for your ERMP implementation. So ERP software had its origins many years ago with some very simple types of objectives it was trying to accomplish. It was just trying to track inventory and orders and activities better within an organization. Sounds simple enough. But over the years, it's evolved into more than that. It's not only trying to tie together an organization, provide one common single source of truth for what's happening in the organization, but it's also now trying to introduce more advanced technologies and capabilities into ERPs. So for example, there's new artificial intelligence that's helping organizations automate some of their business processes better. There's machine learning that looks for patterns and exceptions to things as simple as accounts payable processing of invoices. Machine learning, for example, can automate the accounts payable process and use artificial intelligence to flag the exceptions or the things that look like outliers or the things that look like could be potential problems in your accounts payable invoice processing. So that's just one minute example of how machine learning and artificial intelligence is being used to take ERP to a whole nother level. You also have blockchain, which is being used by many organizations and pharmaceutical and food companies, for example. They need to track every raw material in part in an entire production process, an entire distribution process, so that if there's ever a recall or a regulatory problem, blockchain can be used to trace problems back to the supplier, and that's a new technology that's being provided. And then finally, one other common trend we're seeing is Internet of Things. If you have an Apple Watch and your Apple Watch is tracking your daily activity, that's an example of Internet of Things. It's tracking that information, it's storing it in the cloud, and what you do with that information and how information like that could tie back to an enterprise is very important. For example, a lot of manufacturing organizations will have Internet of Things type devices out on the shop floor that will be tracking data on the shop floor that will then tie back to the ERP system so that you can see complete visibility into what is not only happening within the corporate headquarters, but also what's happening out on the shop floor. So those are just a few examples of some of the trends that are emerging in the ERP space. So ERP software can be a very powerful thing. If managed correctly, implemented correctly, 
and leveraged correctly, organizations can go to the next level in their respective journeys. But it requires the right focus, the right discipline, and also just finding the right technology. So I encourage you to look at some of the downloads I've included links to below that'll give you more of a picture of some of the top ERP software systems in the marketplace, some of the best practices around how to implement ERP software. I've included links to some white papers and blogs below that might help you through that journey. So I hope you found this information useful and hope you have a great day. Okay, that is What is ERP Software, the number one most watched digital transformation video on my YouTube channel, 95,430 views for the year close to 200,000 views overall since it was released about two or two and a half years ago. So um, hopefully you found that interesting. It's always interesting to see what topics and videos are resonating the most. I'd love to hear your feedback on that top 10 list. What do you think? Have you seen videos that either on my channel or someone else's channel that you think you're better that should be in this top 10 list? Um, anything you don't think belongs in this top 10 list? Love to hear your feedback. So be sure to drop it in the chat below. Um, but that's really it. That's what we've got for you today. We're going to close things out here episode number 99. We're going to queue things up for episode 100. One week from today, we will release episode number 100, which will get to the top 10 videos. Or I'm sorry, not the top 10 videos. We just did that. We're going to do the top 10 interviews of 2022 on this podcast. So if you didn't get a chance to watch all 50 plus episodes throughout 2022, which chances are fairly high that you probably didn't see them all because each episode is two plus hours and we had 50 of them or so. Um, so I imagine just a very small percentage of you, of the audience here, saw all those all those interviews. So what we're going to do is sort of curate and count down the ones that we think are best, and we're going to play you highlights from each of those videos or each of those interviews. So we'll we'll cover the top ten list next week in episode number one hundred, and that'll be the top ten interviews of twenty twenty two for this podcast. So I want to thank you all for listening. Be sure to subscribe give us a rating, give us comments, join the conversation, and also fee, uh, feel free to share this podcast with others that you think might benefit from it. So if you enjoyed this episode, hope you have a great day, and we will see you next time on Transformation Ground Control. Take care. And has the, yeah, let me start that again. That airplane's going to bug me too. It's a lot of uh, commercial air traffic today. I wasn't planning on that. All right. Is the idea that... Ah, let me start that again. Am I squinting a ton or is that just me? Okay. <laughs> I feel like I'm squinting, but... Thought, um, okay, scratch that. Let me do that again. Sorry. It's way more fun with Kyler. Inability to be everything to everyone. Boom. Start that again. Noises are distracting me a little more than I thought they would. <laughs> the plane and whatever the hell's going on back here. Yeah.